This is Jocko Podcast number 308 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willing. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. So tonight, at long last, we are going to wrap up what has ended up being a six-part series. I got a little out of control, didn't I? Well. I kind of got a little out of control on this one. Well, how not to do it cannot be overstated. How not to do it cannot be overstated. Explain that. means like. If there are little tips how not to do something, let's face it, the, the value is what they call infinite. It's infinite. Check. Good point. The book is called On the Psychology of Military Incompetence. We started on 303, podcast 303, 304, 305, 306, 307. That's a lot of podcasts. This is the, this is the winner. Yeah. Most number of podcasts on a single book. If you haven't listened to those, you can go back. I, can, I actually will say this. In preparing this one, if you haven't listened to those, you don't even have to go back. You can listen to this one. There might be a couple references, but they're not super, you'll be able to get through them. And this this section that we're about to cover kind of starts with the crux of the book. But again, when I started reading this book a couple of years ago, it was a couple, maybe it was a year ago, maybe it was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Actually, I forget when, the, when I got this book, but I knew it was gonna take a while. I didn't know it was gonna take this long. Mm-hmm. But here we are. Um, I apologize for taking so long. <laughs> no, I did good. <laughs> uh, like you said, though, there's when you understand how not to do something, and you understand what the pitfalls are, and the mistakes you can make, and the traps. These things are all traps. Yeah. They're all traps. Mm-hmm. And when you start to be able to see the traps, it's it helps a person a lot. It doesn't make them not go on, go into the traps. That's the whole point. Yeah. That's one of the whole points of this book is people know that this is a trap and they walk right into it. Mm-hmm. They just can't even help themselves. Yeah, yeah. Like remember the whole name dropping thing that he yeah. talked about? Yes, sir. I forget which one it was, but name dropping. Everybody knows it looks whack yeah. and they still do it. They can't control themselves. Hard, yeah. Well, yes, let me sir. rephrase that. An arrogant, egotistical person that's nervous about how they look they're gonna name drop even though they know it looks bad, even though they'll point at someone else and say, oh, listen to Carrie name dropping yeah, over there. Yeah. They'll do that and then they'll name drop. <laughs> yeah. They'll go, hey, I see uh, Carrie was name dropping over here. Did you see him name dropping me? I was talking to Joe Rogan the other day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes, that's how whack people are. Yes, that's, the, that's how we get stuck in lame situations. Yeah. So the crux of this book is actually the chapter that we're gonna start with right now. Dave Burke couldn't make it, by the way. Good deal, Dave. Working, busy. Um, the, the chapter here is called authoritarianism. And this is kind of the crux. And this is, this is what we need to watch out for. Well, this is, this is what we need to watch out for, this authoritarian mindset. Look, do you need to watch out for it as a nation? Yes, you better, especially as things start getting imposed on your, on your life. Because that slides into authoritarianism, and that's that's a slippery slope. And I know you that you're going to bring up the slippery slope fallacy. Well, I see it in your eyes. Oh, well, again, and I'll say that I said it before: where there is such thing as a slippery slope, and there is such thing as a slippery slope fallacy. Mm-hmm. They're not like one doesn't, you know. They both exist. They both exist. Exactly right. So authoritarianism in our minds, we have to watch out for it. In our teams, as leaders, we have to watch out for it. And yes, as human beings living in a, whatever country you live in, you need to watch out for that authoritarianism because it's a thing that once it starts to take hold, 
the authoritarian it snowballs yeah like i get a little bit of control authoritarian yeah. people when they get a little bit of control they want more control yeah. and then they get a little bit more they want even more and they don't stop yeah. and it's a it's a it's a psychopathology that they have that they can't contain it So here we go, authoritarianism. In discussing military organizations, it was suggested that a symbiotic relationship exists between certain characteristics of armed services and the private needs of the individual members. So what that's saying is, when you go in the military, there's certain needs that certain people have, certain psychological needs that people have, that going in the military satisfies those needs. For instance, here's here's an example of where this is a bad thing. I like to rule over people. I know if I become an officer in the military, I'll be able to rule over those privates. So it sort of satisfies that to me. So there's a nice relationship I have. I want to be an authoritarian. This puts me in an authoritarian position. I love it. Is this true of all military people? No, it's not. Continue on. Emphasis was laid upon the central role in this relationship of anxiety, that insidious motivator of such of much human behavior. In the military mind, it was pointed out, anxiety has many sources. Fear of death and mutilation, fear of suppression, fear of failure and social disapproval, fear of public disgrace, and underlying all that fear of total disorder, which is inseparable product of unleashing normally tabooed instinctual forces. So if you're a person that doesn't like disorder, you look at the military and go, that looks pretty good. You gotta go to bed at a certain time. All these people will listen to me. We get to follow orders. They're gonna tell me what to do. Everyone's gonna listen to when I tell them what to do. That's, you, you're, if you don't like disorder, that's a great place to be. Mm. Until what happens? the lair of total disorder on planet Earth opens its jaws, and that is combat. Mm -hmm. So now you're a person that doesn't like disorder, and for your job, at the moment of truth, you are thrust into the jaws of the highest level of disorder in the world. That is combat. Mm -hmm. And that's why this is, that's what this book is about, this psychology of military incompetence, is because people that like order and join the military because they like order. And then their actual job, look, part of their job is marching around a parade field and inspecting uniforms and keeping everything squared away. That's great. Mm-hmm. But the when that when that homie shows up and shit's getting crazy, they lose their minds. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking, when you're judging, and you're thinking, oh, what if that bad guy be a good military officer? They're highly disciplined. Mm-hmm. They're highly disciplined. They 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 they, lo- they follow orders. They're authoritarian. They, they seem like they'd be great. You need to re- remember, what's that person going to do when things get wild? And they're going to get wild. <laughs> mm-hmm. Continuing on, finally it was suggested, and you can see where this whole book, that little, that, that crux, that's why I said this is the crux of the book. Mm-hmm. That crux right there is why this is so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Because I've seen this throughout my career. People that were squared away, people that were highly disciplined, people that were loved for things to be in order and when things weren't going right or things were getting wild they'd lose their minds mm-hmm. and by the way if they never got put into a situation where things got wild they getting promoted by the way they're getting promoted because they're the most right. ordered oh, yeah. they kept the tightest reins on their troops yeah. back to the book finally it was suggested that a special predisposition toward these several sorts of anxiety may be present in some people as a result of their early childhood. Again, this is where, and somebody pointed this out to me on one of the YouTube comments 
The word I was looking for was psychobabble. Psychobabble. Because, again, this guy was a psychologist, so he ties all this stuff into weird Freudian freaking childhood experiences, and I can't back any of that up. I don't know about any of that. Hmm. What I do know is this. People have different personalities. Where those personalities came from, I don't really know, and I actually don't care. You show up to a SEAL team, your personality is that, whatever whatever your personality is, and that's that's great, that's fine. I don't care where it came from. If you're hyper-ordered and you can't stand it when things get wild, you're not gonna be a good SEAL officer mm. or a good SEAL leader. If you're totally rebellious and you can't fall into line ever, well, that's too far in the other direction and now you can't control anything, you can't control yourself. So we wanna find somebody that balances that dichotomy. But whether it comes from early childhood and the way you were potty trained and all this kind of mm. psychobabble, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to ask uh, Jordan B. Peterson, name yes, drop, about yes, that one. Yes, sir. Such people may well be drawn towards military organizations because the latter have, of necessity, perfected devices like bullshit and discipline and hierarchical command structures and rigid conventions, which not only allow aggression without anxiety, but also reduce anxiety that may have originated much earlier period of life. Okay. Again. A little bit, a little bit psychoanalysis too much for me. It's sort of, it's a bummer because, as I've said many times, Jordan Peterson made me start to like think maybe psychology was sort of a real thing. This is kind of drawing me back in the other direction. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, sorry, psychologist. Somebody, somebody went. I, I was reading YouTube uh, notes, no, no comments, and somebody was telling me that, um, you know, what well, much of what Freud said was actually right, but he's just been so. Uh, like hammered by his right. reputation because he was a cocaine right. fiend, mm. and that now we kind of dis, dis, yeah, yeah. disperse or dispatch everything that he said. Mm. So maybe I was a little hard on him. I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, if you're doing a lot of cocaine like that and oh. you're prescribing it to a bunch of people and you're lying about who's getting cured, I kind of take a lot of what you said and throw it out the window. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> what, what's the there's a there's a that's a bias too, right? The a uh, cocaine addictor addiction no, is no, no, no. yes. That's my bias. I'm biased no, against a, people that are addicted to cocaine. No, it's not. Sorry, it's not a bias. It's a logical fallacy. I don't know if you're you're committing okay. this logical okay. fallacy, but it's um it's the I forget what it is, but the example is like, oh, why would you listen to Fred? Fred doesn't even have a job, so it's kind of like. Okay. It's like I think I am committing that. Like, I'm kind of like, why would you listen to Freud? <laughs> I know Freud's addicted to cocaine. Uh, yeah. Hey, look, I'm and not lying to people. I'm not saying you're making the bad bad decision or mm-hmm. nothing like that. I'm saying from a logical standpoint, okay. it's technically a fallacy. It's like okay, that means if you do cocaine, everything else you say is incorrect. Okay. Is yeah, that what right. that means? Yep. From a logical standpoint, yep. you're right. Okay. Well, I'll concede that. Per- well, that's that. What I am conceding. Bruh. Freud was right part of the time. Give Freud his problem. On some of the stuff. Yeah. As he was snorting Just cocaine. not about <laughs> In light of all this, it is encouraging to encounter a substantial body of research which not only provides support for the thesis but also fills in many of the gaps. It is that on the authoritarian personality. And then they get into this massive section about the authoritarian personality, which I'm not covering the whole thing because I've already spent six freaking podcasts on this book, which is all good. But... I'm gonna do a little bit of it. For the impetus behind the study of authoritarianism, we have to thank the founders and and proponents of the Third Reich. They, it who was presented to the world a phenomenon the like of which has never been seen 
before. Since the systematic bureaucratized murder of six million Jews, to the inquiring mind, anti-Semitism on this scale would seem to demand at the very least some explanation. For a group of researchers at Frankfurt and later at Berkeley, California, the fact that human prejudice could assume such monstrous proportions suggested the possibility of a particular personality type being implicated in the perpetration of these dark events. So basically he's saying, look, the Nazis were psycho. Where did their personality come from? What type of people had that personality? And then he goes into a Nazi psychologist whose name was Jench, something like that. Jench, I don't know. Sorry there, you Nazi bastard (laughs) from mispronouncing your name. So he broke it down, and there was S-types, which S-types at the, at the high end could have something called synesthesia. Have you ever heard of synesthesia before? Mm-mm. Synesthesia. This is a very interesting story. So synesthesia. Seth Stone, mm. he was, could memorize any number immediately. Huh. So if he met like a female in a bar, mm. he would say, what's your number? And they would say it. And he would immediately know it. Hell yeah. And and then he was really good at weird math problems. Mm-hmm. And and he could memorize dates. Mm-hmm. And one day we were talking because it, it was it was enough it was noticeable enough how good he was at it that you think to yourself, there's something a little different. That's really weird how he could memorize this stuff. Mm-hmm. So he said to me one day, he goes, you know, this is kind of weird, but when I see numbers, I don't see a number, I see a color. And and it has like a texture to it. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. okay, bro. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we were in the military, I'd think you were maybe on some, <laughs> some LSD. LSD or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he, I said, what do you mean? He says, well, for me, and it, he then he described the colors of each, the colors and textures of each number. Yeah. So, the only ones I remember was that zero was like hollow. Mm. He said he said zero was hollow. Mm. It's not. It's like it's not there. Uh, one was white, and the other one I remember is seven was yellow. And the reason I remember that one is because I have two sevens in my phone number. And when the first time I asked him what my, I said say my phone number in colors, and he was like, you know, <laughs> yellow, yellow, hollow, but and yeah. yellow, yellow, and I have two sevens. And I said, what's? I go is seven yellow. He goes, yeah. So it was just weird. He had no idea why this was the situation. That's crazy. So one day I'm in a bookstore, and this is you know kind of (laughs) day when you wouldn't just go on a website to buy your books. I'm in a bookstore, and I see numbers on a cover of a book, and they're all colored and textured. And I was, I was, hmm, that's weird. And I walk over and I pick it up and I start looking through it. And it says, oh, this book is about a person that had synesthesia. Huh. And so it, so I look it up. Synesthesia is a thing where you have um, multiple, multiple modes of, of interpreting information. Yeah. So for instance, numbers have colors. They can have um, letters can have colors, but that so that's the way, that's the way Seth thought. Yeah, and so for this Nazi, Jench, that was kind of the far end of this kind of wild creative thing. This c- kind of wild creative person. 
here it says to have subjective experiences in one modality when receiving stimulation in another this is the yeah. kind of wildest brain that you can get and so this nazi guy this is the s type these are people that are s types doesn't mean they necessarily have synesthesia but they're leaning in that direction and this quote has the liberal in his views eccentric behavior also weak, effeminate, and prone to heretical belief that people are largely shaped by their environment and education. Again, this is from a Nazi psychologist, Hmm. which, I mean, if we're not listening to Freud, we're certainly not listening to this Nazi dude. (laughs) So, but he's he's breaking it down into two types, the S type, and then the other type is the J type. And according to this guy, um, the J type were, quote, good types that would make good Nazis Amongst their sterling qualities were purity in perception and the sure knowledge that human behavior is determined by blood, soil, and national tradition. Hence, freaking Nazis. Uh, The J-type, so the Nazi type would be a he-man, hard and tough, a man you could rely on. These qualities would, he said, have been handed down by a long line of North German ancestors. (laughs) So... This is what the Nazi says, and it's just, it's kind of funny because, uh, well, Sestone was about as hard of a bastard as you could ever know, and uh, certainly a he-man individual as well, and a warrior, a big freaking Viking warrior. I texted his mom the other day. I was like, yeah, thanks for letting me hang out with that freaking savage Viking kid of yours. Um, So now we go to... The Berkeley study. So, so we just did the Nazi study who got these two different types. The S type, which is sort of the liberal, sort of effeminate type. And then the, the J type, which is more of the conservative, hardcore type. Then the American researchers later, uh, going back to the book, also found two contrasting personality types. And these were very like those described by Jainch. Needless to say, they evaluated them rather differently. The one that corresponded to the J-type, they called the authoritarian personality. Such a person was anti-Semitic, rigid, intolerant of ambiguity. Again, think about this. If you're intolerant of ambiguity, think of how you're going to perform in combat. You're going to be great in the military, yeah. in, the, in, the, in the rear of the military, because you, you don't like ambiguity. As soon as you're in combat and you don't exactly know what's happening, you've got to make a decision, you're going to hate it. So, um, intolerant of ambiguity and hostile to people or groups racially different from himself. By the same token, the polar opposite to this type, Jainch, contemptible anti-type, was individualistic, tolerant, democratic, unprejudiced, and egalitarian. So you've got these two different personalities. <laughs> The Nazis called the bad one good, <laughs> and the Berkeley people called the good one bad. So you get however you want to break that down. Uh, their test provided measures of anti-Semitism, ethnocentrism, political and economic conservatism, and implicit anti-democratic trends or potentiality for fascism, which they called the F scale. Like, what is your potential of becoming a fascist? Mm-hmm. This, much of which is based on by actual utterances by the Nazis measured an individual's predisposition towards. So this is what the F type, if you have a tendency where you could become a fascist. Conventionalism, i.e. rigid adherence to conventional middle-class values. Authoritarian submission. 
a submissive, uncritical attitude toward the idealized moral authorities of the group which he identifies himself. And that's what's kind of crazy, right? You would think that authoritarians would be, you'd be hard to control. Mm-hmm. But if you're part of their, if they're part of that group, they're in the game. Yeah. You know, so that's why like the young, the young officer in the military that he's totally down. He's, he's saluting with utmost vigor because he's part of that system and he just, he's on board. He's submissive to the system. Authoritarian aggression, i.e. a tendency to be on the lookout for and to condemn, reject, and punish people who violate conventional values. It's kind of weird how there's like right now you've got. Antifa, who's supposed to be sort of like the wild anti-fascist, who's actually totally on board with what yeah. I'm saying right now, as yeah. they're they're off the charts on the F scale. Yeah. So, like this, I don't know if this F scale would reflect this specifically or or accurately, but essentially you have like two two sides, right? One one is real conventional, right? They they're probably probably I don't know, but they're probably going to ignore exceptions, you know, the value of exceptions and mm-hmm. nuance and all this stuff, right? They're going to mm-hmm. tend to ignore it, right? Then you have the other side who probably overvalue nuance and exceptions. Kind of mm-hmm. like, hey, if there's these exceptions, oh, that must be just as equal as the rule. Because, you know, you kind of yeah. look at the individual, you know. So th- that that Antifa analogy is absolutely correct. <laughs> They're doing the exact same thing. They just reversed it. Yeah, you know? so it's flipped. A, yeah, you got you to gotta kind of, I don't know, back in the day, it seems, seems like everyone was way more just in the middle. Well, you know? balance is what, we've, what we lose. Yeah. And, and what you want, even on these two things. Do you want to be a fascist? No. But do you want to be um, crazy uncontrollable? No. Yeah. You want to be balanced. Yeah. Yeah, and even even just valuing like the the group, and then on the other on the other hand, va- valuing the individual. It's like you got to value both you of those things. Value both you know? those things. Yeah, hundred yeah. um, percent. Next one: anti-interception, i.e., opposition to the subjective, the imaginative, and the tender-minded. Superstition and stereotype, um, power and toughness. Preoccupation with the dominant submission, strong, weak, leader, follower, dimension, identification with power figures, overemphasis on conventional attributes of the ego, exaggeration, exaggerated, exaggerated assertion of strength and toughness. So how much of that is important? Like, you know, that's putting you out there on that F scale a little bit. I'm starting to drift, man. <laughs> starting to drift. Destructiveness and cynicism. Generalized hostility, vilification of the human. So... You know, obviously, there a lot of this was focused around hey, the Nazis and where the Nazis came from. Mm-hmm. Part of that F thing is they can look at humans and be like, whatever, they don't matter. Mm-hmm. Projectivity, the belief that wild and dangerous things go on in the world, the projection outwards of unconscious emotional impulses, puritanical, an exaggerated concern with sexual goings on. Um. <clears throat> So you got these two personality types. Another little note here. These torturous machinations of the authority of the authoritarian mind ramify yet further. Because he has to deny his own shortcomings, he dare not look inward. He is fearful of insight and strenuously avoids questioning his own motives. Again, this is when people are they're not real confident with themselves, so they project mm-hmm. and look at everyone else. 
Similarly, the authoritarian personality is intolerant of ambivalence and ambiguity. We already hit that. Just as he cannot harbor negative and positive feelings for the same person, but must dichotomize reality into loved people versus hated people. So that's very, that's a very, uh, that's restating what you said. Because someone, what should you be able to do? You should be able to look at Echo and be like, you know what? I like that Echo's, you know, he's, He's pretty nice, but also he can get a little bit lazy sometimes. But overall, you know, we're good. <laughs> cryptic, I guess. Right? Messages, whatever. <laughs> Not so cryptic. Right? But for me it. to say, Echo's nice, but freaking he's lazy, I can't stand him. Right? right? And yeah. then you can start looking from one individual to look to a whole group of people, as right. you said. And yeah, I start looking at a group of people mm-hmm. and just saying, well, that group of people is bad. Right. Did I just do that with Antifa? I just kind of sorry, you implied it. A I implied, bit, yes. yeah. Sorry, Antifa. I need to be a little bit more uh, open-minded to your well, individuals. <laughs> yeah, they're they're one of those groups that their their current public-facing persona not that hot. Mm, yeah. <sighs> There's another nine-year research that took place, published a decade after the Berkeley research, and this is something that I've been focused on a lot, and it's. The open and closed mind centered on the problem of an individual's capacity to absorb fresh information. Humanity, it seems, varies considerably in this respect. And God, that is true. So this guy, his name is Rokich, Rokich, something like this, and he did the study. He started breaking down the open and the closed mind. Some people have open minds, some people have closed minds. And I actually think that this is even kind of trumps the F what was it, the F? Scale. The F scale. I think this trumps the F scale. How much can someone's mind open? How much can it close? Mm. And I've been talking a lot about this from a leadership perspective because it is, to me, what we have to fight all the time. We, our minds are constantly trying to close and be defensive and take care of themselves and not allow any other ideas in. And what we have to do as people and as leaders is constantly pull your mind open, constantly accept other people's ideas doesn't mean you have to think that they're right, but you have to listen to them and assess them in an honest way. And what we have been doing a lot of as a society is just closing our minds to everyone else's ideas. And we don't want to hear what their perspective is because we think we're right. Mm. And if you do that as a leader, you know, you come to me with a, a viewpoint on my plan and I don't open my mind to your viewpoint, I'm wrong. Um, goes on here, humanity it seems varies considerably in this respect that the one extreme are open minds ready and willing to entertain new facts even if they are incompatible with their previously held attitudes and beliefs. That's what we want. You gotta open your mind and be like, hey, you know what? I wouldn't really expect to see those numbers or get that feedback, but there it is. Yeah. And I need, to, I need to put that in my calculus. The other, at the other end of the scale are closed minds which, as their name suggests, resolutely resist taking in anything that conflicts with their preconceptions and treasured beliefs. Not very surprisingly, the possession of a closed mind turned out to be yet another aspect of the authoritarian personality. Mm. Is that? Okay, so you can always make it like an analogy to weightlifting for some reason. Maybe you can, <laughs> but I'm open to it. But, Let's hear what you got, homie. But like, I wonder if that's like a lazy... Is, you know how, like, by nature, like, the human body and brain is kind of late. For lack of a better term, it's lazy. Yep. It's conserving, yep. like, energy all the time, yep. you know? Like, so even, like, lifting weights, when you lift weights, mm-hmm. 
your body's response to lifting weights is just a lazy laziness mechanism. And so that your body's basically saying, oh, shoot, that was kind of hard. Mm-hmm. What do we got to do at home to in the body to easier. make it a little bit easier next time? And then it adapts and gets bigger and stronger, whatever. So it's kind of like a weird, like I said, laziness, lack of a better term, mm-hmm. mechanism. So like when you have a closed mind, it's kind of like, hey, I already learned that. Like, don't yeah. give me some more stuff I got to learn you 100%. Know, kind of thing. So then it's easier, like, because it's all mental, it's not physical. So you just kind of resist against it, you and, know? And you can see where this ties into everything that I have talked about from a leadership perspective for my entire life, yeah. which is humility. Yeah. Because if you're humble, your mind is open. If you're arrogant, your mind is closed. Yeah. You think you know everything. You don't need to hear anything else. You're not yeah. going to make any adaptations. Yeah, when you see that little system, it kind of makes sense. It, though, it makes right? so because, much sense. Right, especially go back to the weightlifting. Like, you give your body some, <laughs> Definitely some go a back workout. To the here. Bro, the next day, bro, you get that DOMS. Bro, mm-hmm. you don't like that stuff. Like, I remember when I was little, I'd do some push-ups, right, thinking mm-hmm. I'm all cool or whatever, do some push The next day, I'm like, so I didn't know about DOMS that much. Mm-hmm. And, bro, that's a terrible feeling. So it's like, bro, I'm not doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. Or at, at the very least, at the, in the inside of my body, my body's like, hey, we got to do something easier or make it so it's easier next time that happens. So from a mental standpoint, it makes sense. Where, bro, that, what do you call it? The, the fucking, you call you, you talked about it last, the cognitive uh, dissonance or whatever. Yeah. That is doms for your mind, essentially. <laughs> or maybe the precursor to, do, I don't know. It's one of those things. I'm just saying it makes sense because yeah. that hurts. You yeah. know, when you get that new stuff, yeah. I don't want that new stuff. That's I'm it. good with this old stuff. Closed mind. Yeah. He says here, before leaving this section on authoritarianism, there are several other research findings which are pertinent to our present thesis. One of these shows the relationship between conformity, authoritarianism, and the tendency to yield to group pressures. An extreme example of this pattern is the phenomenon per. Uh, of the participation in a lynch mob where the naturally conformist individual happily yields to group pressure for the perpetration of a criminally aggressive act which, though wholly at variance with the ethos of the wider society, accords with his own narrow self-interest. So again, it's, it's 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 counterintuitive to think that someone that's authoritarian is going to be more apt to go with the group. Another finding concerns the effect of authoritarianism upon problem solving in a group situation. And you know I love this one because, again, I'm thinking of it from a military perspective, and you you start thinking, now you got this authoritarian in command, how are they at problem solving? Well, let's go to the book. From their research, W. Haythorne and his colleagues concluded this, that Equalitarian subjects, i.e. those low on authoritarianism, were apparently more effective in dealing with a task and problem than were authoritarian. Hmm. So that open mind is way better for problem solving. Seems obvious, but this was reflected in higher ratings of effective intelligence, leadership, and goal striving. On the sorts of leaders who emerged in the group situation, they had this to say, emergent leaders in the low F groups were more sensitive to others, more effective leaders, more prone to making suggestions for action subject to group sanction, and less likely to give direct orders to others. This is insane how much this matches everything I've been talking about. Mm -hmm. A conclusion incidentally, which accords with the observation that authoritarians are less able to appreciate the effect they have upon others and may well think themselves more liked and popular than they really are. 
<laughs> I'm chuckling as I think of my military career and people that thought that they were super popular and everyone hated them. <laughs> Even people attracted to a career in an authoritarian organization, i.e. the military, have been found to prefer leaders who score low on a th- on tests of authoritarianism, presumably because authoritarians are less sensitive to the needs of others. So even when you're a when you're kind of authoritarian yourself and you joined the military, when you get asked about what type of leader you like, guess what? You actually like less authoritarian leaders because they listen, they yeah. treat you with respect, their minds are open. Yeah, that's so this is the best way to lead across the board. You know, skyscrapers here in San Diego, mm-hmm. Cal- California. I'm sure it's, it's like this everywhere. I'm not an engineer. Mm-hmm. You you know that. Um, but from what I understand, okay, so think of a, 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 a tall building, right? It's tall. So that thing better be strong, right, to mm-hmm. hold itself up. But tall buildings aren't made rigidly. They're made with a little bit of yep. flims, flimsiness on purpose yep. to absorb, like, Movement. The various movements and vibrations that may or may not come about. See what I'm saying? So it's essentially the same thing. On the surface, you think, oh, yeah, authoritarianism, that's the way. You can't destroy destroy it. It's You can't break it or nothing like that. But probably that's not how it works. Yeah. If you're too rigid, probably you're just going to crumble when the wiggles start yeah. coming, when the earthquake starts coming, you know? Again, this is why humility is the most important aspect or characteristic for a leader. Because when you're humble, you're able to move a little bit. Yeah. You're able to yeah. take on new ideas. You're able to sway when the earthquake comes and yes, make sir. adjustments. Yes, You're not just crumbling and falling down. Yes, sir. It cannot be stressed too strongly that in talking about authoritarianism, we have been discussing people towards one end of a continuum. This is important because this is a dichotomy. This guy couldn't quite put that. He couldn't grasp that concept like your boy right here did. <laughs> yes, sir. Between Because you got to balance that dichotomy, but here's what he says. Between this end and the other can be found people with all shades of opinion on the various attitudes measured. The general point is this. When discussing authoritarianism, no value judgment is intended. Few would dispute that, in moderation, many of the traits which make up the authoritarian personality have value in society. Civilization requires that there be some repression of sex and aggression, some exercise of discipline, and a modicum of conformity and orderliness. So there's there's aspects of that personality which are good, and that's true in the military. In fact, the military got a little bit extra. You know, because you got to be a little bit more conformist because you got to get the, t- you know, you got to be on board. Yeah. But but it attracts people that are too much. Yeah. A little bit fast forward here. In other respects, however, the likelihood of above average levels of authoritarianism in military personnel may well contribute toward incompetence, particularly when the authoritarian has reached a level of command where flexibility and an open mind are a mandatory for success. To be more specific, the personality traits of authoritarianism and the associated characteristics of the closed mind and obsessive character may contribute to incompetence in the following ways. One, since authoritarians have been found to be more dishonest, more irresponsible, more untrustworthy, more socially conforming, more suspicious than non-authoritarians, they are unlikely to make successful social leaders. Authoritarians will be less likely to understand enemy intentions. I never thought of that before, actually. Here's something new for Jocko. Mm-hmm. If you're authoritarian, you're less likely to understand what the enemy's doing because you can't even understand their perspective. Yeah. 
and to act upon information regarding such intentions as conflict with the beliefs and preconceptions which the commander might hold. That makes sense. So, okay, forgive me for all the analogies, by the way. I'm just realizing. What do you got this like, time? You're, you got you're talking about this stuff. Buildings. <laughs> yeah, okay, so now this time is cameras. You're 0 oh, for or, 2. Or, or photograph, <laughs> whatever. Not even, I'm 2 for 2. Though they were accurate. These last ones are everywhere. Okay. Perception okay. is different <laughs> amongst people. <laughs> all right. Well, consider a camera, right? Or, or a photograph or whatever, okay. right? You have high resolution, low resolution mm-hmm. kind of a situation. So the authoritarianism seems like a low resolution scenario. Okay. Way more black and white. Way more like, oh, yeah. Like freaking either it's this way. And if it's not this way, then it's obviously the, the other way. Yep. But you get a high res photo. It's like, oh, that's not that's. Oh, that's just black. Obviously, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Just look closer. It's it's kind of gray. It's actually pretty dark gray. And then even within that gray, there's darker and lighter shades of gray. Or even saying? colors. Or oh, well, colors. What? A, yeah. What have you? This one might be orange. This one might be uh, salmon. Which is a color, by yeah. the way. Eggshell. You know Eggshell with Romalian type. By the way, what's that from? American Psycho. No, no, no. But see what I'm saying though. Um, where you get a low res situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah they yeah. like they don't get it. They yeah. don't know. And then you said well, they don't know what the enemy's thinking. Yeah, yeah. because they th- they see black. Yeah. But the enemy's not on black. They're over here on freaking eighty-eight percent gray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. So yeah, that's just the way it's working. See what I'm saying? So you got to be. Well, I'm not saying you got to be. I'm just saying it might be as the book is demonstrating more uh, a fish effective. To have a more nuanced perception of what's happening. Some high res scenarios. In 1954, American research showed that people with a high score on tests of authoritarianism had greater difficulty than non-authoritarians in recognizing threatening messages when these were presented visually. A year later, another study confirmed this finding with threatening words that were heard instead of seen. So, so someone that's authoritarian, they don't even, they just don't comprehend the world accurately. That yeah. is now your, your metaphor just became more ample in that right there. Yeah. They, they don't, they can't see as well. They can't see as clear. They can't see the nuance. They can't see the message. Yeah. Three, the inability to sacrifice cherished traditions and accept technical innovations. The history of the machine gun, the tank, and the aeroplane contains striking as evidence of this disability. In war, an ounce of calculation is worth a ton of intuition. It also saves many lives. Number four, the underestimation of enemy ability. Number five, and he's got whole sections about each one of these. That's why you got to buy the book. Number five, an emphasis upon the importance of blind obedience and loyalty at the expense of initiative and innovation at lower levels of command. So that's just, if you lose that. So if you're, if you're in charge of a company of soldiers and your focus on, is on getting them to be blindly obedient because you're an authoritarian, it's bad. And you're, and you're doing it at the expense of having decentralized command. Out for that. Mm-hmm. Got to beware. Number six, the protection of the reputations of senior commanders and punishment of those in the lower military hierarchy if they voice any opinion, however valuable in itself, implies criticism of those higher up. So they don't want to hear any pushback on anything, which is, again, a stark contrast to what I encourage all the time up and down the chain of command. I want pushback from my team. My team isn't pushing back. Actually, I'm nervous. Mm. Now I think I've got blind obedience, which I don't want. Mm-hmm. 
Number seven, closely related to the foregoing effects of authoritarianism is an individual's propensity to blame others for their own shortcomings. This is the opposite of extreme ownership. So the opposite of extreme ownership is authoritarianism blaming other people. Wouldn't it suck if I was reading this book like right now and it just wasn't working? It was all <laughs> not mashing up. <laughs> yeah. uh, all my theories were wrong. Ugh. Number eight, the close relationship between authoritarianism and obsessive traits has also played a significant part in military incompetence. This is a matter which we discussed earlier. Suffice it to say that the worst excesses of bull and the clinging to uh, an acrastic ritual have played not a not inconsiderable part in holding back the military machine. So when you are t- hyper obsessed OCD on little things that don't matter, this is not gonna help you. Uh, number nine, there's one trait of the authoritarian personality which at first sight may seem to have nothing to do with military incompetence, a belief in supernatural forces. The contrary is in fact the case. As a general issue, since military decisions should not be based upon a proper weighing up of facts, the introduction of metaphysical variables into decision making necessarily contributes noise, which decreases the probability of decisions being correct. Correct. Concern with what the stars foretell or hopes and occasionally fears of the divine intervention constitute prejudices which can bias decisions away from realism and towards wishful fantasies. That's a weird one to me because you would think that the people that were anti-authoritarianism would be more kind of superstitious. Yeah. But he's we didn't run through all the examples. We get all kinds of examples of that. Yeah. All kinds of examples through that throughout history of people that are authoritarian. I mean, Hitler is a good example because he was all into the occult yeah. and all that and superstitious about stuff. Yeah. One of the least uh, number ten. One of the least attractive aspects of the authoritarian personality is his generalized hostility. What the Berkeley researchers called vilification of the human. This was a trait that, which was manifested to such an extreme degree by members of the Nazi SS, they commit wholesale murder, not just without guilt or shame, but perhaps most surprisingly, without the slightest evidence of revulsion. And then he says, finally, there is the fact that authoritarianism, authoritarianism itself, so damaging to military endeavor will actually predispose an individual towards entering upon the very career wherein his restricted personality can wreak the most havoc. Because this is what I kind of opened up with saying today. People that have these tendencies are attracted to the military. And he gives the following case study. Case 19, Cecile, or Cecil, Cecil, yeah. I guess Cecile would be a girl's name, wouldn't it? Yes, sir. So Cecil is a male name. Yes, sir. More of a British name. We don't. I've never met an American dude named Cecil. Have you? Yes, sir. Really? Yeah. Okay. I have not. Just one. Was he from England? No. Black Canadian? guy. Canadian? No. Black guy. Cecil. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Wait, who's Cecil Peoples? Oh yeah, that's a, that's he's a, an actor. No, isn't that a UFC guy? Cecil Peoples, some UFC <laughs> like commentator, ref maybe. I think he's a ref. I'm drawing a blank for some reason. Cecil Peoples, right? Anyway, Cecil Peoples, shout out. All right. I'm I if I if I'm not mistaken, he's a referee. Early on, get get your phone and Google it, bro. <laughs> we gotta Seriously, do I I kind of remember him being. Yeah, you might be right. Might have been a judge. 
Maybe it was a judge. Yeah, Maybe. it seemed like he had some weird background in bare knuckle fighting or something, and then kind of got early UFC activities going. Cecil P E O Cecil Peoples. Cecil Peoples is a there. He is black guy. Why we need support? He's a judge. Why we need to support MMA judge Cecil Peoples? Right on. What from what era? Mm. What was his background? The era that I was watching UFC, which is probably like five years ago and before. Um, this was so this is the guy that you claim to know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I knew I worked with a guy at American Movers named right. Cecil. Um, and then there's Cecil people. All right, check. So here's Cecil R., who's an obsessive neurotic, and I wasn't gonna read this thing, but I kinda have to, and I'll tell you why when we get to the end. His IQ was in the bright, normal range. Personality testing indicated that he was very dependent on his parents, but that they were seen as being emotionally remote and extremely demanding. In fantasy, he expressed strong feelings of aggression and anger. He seemed most interested in the history of wars and in playing war games. He shot darts with vigor and delight in the therapist's playroom, and if given a choice, would choose war games. His parents said he refused to play with other children unless they others did exactly what they told him, what he told them to do. Cecil said, when he grew up, he wanted to be a general. <laughs> so there you go. That's the kind of personality we don't want joining the military, but that is fired up to join the military. Yeah. Next chapter 23, Mothers of Incompetence. We're going kind of heavy. I'm not going to go too, too deep into this chapter because it's going a little bit into the psychology world, which again, I think this some of the psychology is a little bit outdated. This is coming from me and I'm no psychologist. No, but <laughs> sounds like a closed mind scenario. Okay, we'll open it up. Okay, good point. You caught me. I'm busted. <laughs> For the reader not previously versed in the psychology of authoritarianism, the preceding chapter may have come as something a surprise at first sight. The traits of orderliness, tough-mindedness, obedience to authority, punitiveness, and the rest, well, may have seemed the very embodiment of hard-hitting masculinity ideally suited to the job of being a soldier. That is an epic statement, right? All that's exact, and that's what so many people think. Mm -hmm. So many people think that is what we're looking for in the military. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, as represented in the authoritarian personality, they are only skin deep, a brittle crust of defenses against feelings of weakness and inadequacy. The authoritarian keeps up his spirits by whistling in the dark. He is frightened. He is the frightened child who wears the armor of a giant. His mind is a closed, is a door locked and bolted against that which he fears the most himself. I didn't get much out of that, but what I did get a lot out of, what I did get a lot out of is the fact that when you hear these personality traits, tough-mindedness, obedience to authority, it sounds like that's what you want your people to be. You want to, that's what you want your soldier to be. You don't. It's not what you want. It's not what we're looking for. Fast forward a little bit. Before going on, there's one further point. It concerns the distinction that has been drawn between irrational authoritarianism as dealt with here and so-called rational authoritarianism. So this is just a, a clarification here. By the latter is meant the readiness to accept and obey the dictates of a rational authority. Cool. So Pete, there's, there's such a thing. He's, he's basically making a distinction here. An irrational antipathy toward all authority is evident in some cases of student militancy, 
may just be may be just as neurotic as non-adaptive as a predisposition toward irrational authoritarianism. The common denominator of irrational authoritarianism and blind anarchy is that both states of mind are compulsive and derive from an underlying ego pathology. In fact, this distinction between rational and irrational authoritarianism has been implied throughout this book. Without the exercise, this is why I had to read this part, without the exercise and acceptance of rational authority, without certain minimal levels of discipline, and even without certain features of bullshit, military organizations would cease to function. This is something I have to talk about sometime with um, with clients at Echelon Front because decentralized command. We want to have decentralized command, decentralized command, decentralized command. We want subordinates to be able to make choices and make decisions. And occasionally I'll get a, get a, a group that's going too wild with that. Mm. And all of a sudden we're, nothing is centralized anymore. And I have to bring up the fact that, hey, guess what kind of uniform every guy in Task Unit Bruiser War? A matching uniform. Why? Because we couldn't have some guy that was wearing a pair of blue jeans and a and a sweatshirt out in Ramadi because they would look they wouldn't look the same and therefore they get shot. What happens if I run out of bullets? Guess what? I can get bullets from someone else in platoon because we're all using the same weapon. What about my radio? I can use my radio and I can pick up your radio and use it too. Why? Because we're using the same radio. So you have to have some level of centralization, some level of authoritarianism that we're all going to kind of be on the same page Mm. he says then it is necessary to labor this point because of some of the semantic confusion regarding the term authoritarian throughout this book it refers to irrational authoritarianism for the so-called rational authoritarianism we prefer the praise autocratic behavior the terms are not synonymous whereas the autocrat exercises tight control when the situation demands that the authoritarian is himself tightly controlled no matter what the external situation little semantics there he goes in this next chapter education of the cult of muscular christianity okay this is where he starts talking about um you know the british schools how these kids were raised in sort of like this musk what he calls muscular christianity not not kids but some of the kids in this time frame were raised this way uh, here's here's some of the things that are highlighted by the reasons for this stultifying educational program are no doubt many and various but two deserve particular consideration so this is the education program that some of these kids were subjected to the first resides in the belief that enforced application to unpleasant boring tasks develops character and the second that any truly intellectual exercise by which is meant the cultivation of independent thinking as opposed to rote learning harms that fine sense of loyalty and obedience which shuts which such schools strive to inculcate to think is to question and to question is to have doubts so he gives some examples of how these kids were raised what they did at these schools you know they were playing sports they were do hazing rituals and memorizing things and it was all I mean this is this is true to this day you know we've got this sort of school system which is meant to teach you to be a good worker yeah. That's what it's meant to do. Meant to teach you to be a good worker. They don't want, that's why they structure things. It's like, hey, some of the stuff that you learn in school has no value whatsoever. They're just trying to get you to follow the rules, Mm -hmm. do what they say, get on board with the program, 
fall in line with the authoritarian <laughs> rulers. Yeah. So we got to be careful of that. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you feel like they, whoever they are, mm-hmm. are doing it on purpose. And sometimes you just feel like, bro, I think this is just some curriculum that like no one had the like gusto to just be like, hey, we're doing an overhaul. Yeah. It, I think you're right. I think that at some point, like right now, let's face it, if you were to go ground zero and restart your educational system in America, it'd be totally different than it is right now. Yeah. Well, it is, it is slowly changing. It is though. slowly changing. And I'm not even sure that the way that they're changing it is the right direction. Mm-hmm. I think they're taking advantage of the fact that it might not have been the best and they're changing it to make it worse in some cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think in a, from a social standpoint, I think they might have went kind of too hard in a, in a certain direction. Kind of crazy sometimes what kids are learning in school. Disturbing in some cases what kids are learning in school. Yeah. Um, my, my only point of reference is my ele- mm. the elementary schools that my kids go to. I got the full <laughs> spectrum from elementary school through college. <laughs> no, I got it all. I've seen it all. Do you think, um, what was I just thinking about just now? And I'm not really in support of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. The, do you think, in a, the, I don't know the answer to this, but I just, I do kind of consider the other side of this. You, you know how, how, you, how you just said um, the school kind of is, is structured to provide or to develop good workers, right? Mm. Aren't most people workers anyway? Not necessarily. No, no. You want to know something, what I think is messed up now is, I think a lot of times the school right now is to develop people to go to college and feed the academic growth of colleges. Yeah, but even that. Hey, we're just trying to get you to get, oh, you know, it'd be good for you to get a degree in freaking basket weaving or whatever. And no one needs a degree in that. There's yeah. a lot of degrees that you get that you don't need. If you want to learn yeah, about huh. that stuff, go read about it. Don't pay yeah. $200,000 and go into debt to learn about something that has no, yeah. it doesn't give you a skill set. That always felt like a social problem to me. Yeah. It felt like, I don't freaking know. When I was a kid, not 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 a kid, but when I was, when I joined the military, mm. I already, I used to use the term, I don't know if it's ever caught on or I don't know if I've ever heard it, but educational inflation. Because when I was a kid, if you dropped out of high school, you could still get a job and have a normal life. Then as I got to high school, it was, hey, listen, you got to finish high school. If you don't finish high school, you can't get a job, blah, blah, blah. Then it was that I joined the military. Thank God I joined the military. But as I joined the military, it was, hey, you know, you need to really get your whatever. What's a two-year degree? Your associates. your associates, you need to get your associates, get some, you know, get some, right. and then it became bachelors, and now yeah. you got kids that are going to f- getting their masters, and then their doctorate. Right. They spend their they spend they're thirty three years old, thirty five years old, twenty nine years old before they're even getting a job. Yeah. And they racked up. I mean, this is all now. It's all common. Like everyone's racking up three, four hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. Yeah. And the skill set that they got in whatever degree they got, it gets them a 29000 no, no, probably not, probably a $38,000 a year job as a whatever in a whatever, yeah. <laughs> right? It's, yeah. Whereas if you would have gone to, if you would have dropped out of high school and become an apprentice welder, yeah. right now you'd be making one hundred and twenty-eight grand a year. Yeah. Cause you're a hard worker. And by the way, if you're smart, you start, you know, you get, you figure out that welding thing and you buy a, a couple welding, uh, a couple welding machines and you're like, you know what? I can get two guys. I can apprentice them. I can teach them. Boom. You can grow. You can make stuff happen. <laughs> Meanwhile, the person that has $38,000 a year job, they actually have no skill set. Yeah. 
So I think a lot of the educational system right now is a feeder program for the college system, which is gonna charge people money. And this is sort of like the housing crash too. So the housing crash came because the government was loaning money or backing up loans to people that aren't gonna be able to afford it. Mm-hmm. That was, the, that was what one of the causes, one of the primary causing of the housing crash. Right now, the government backs up these loans that these people get, and so they're allowed to get loans for $200,000, $300,000, and they don't realize it. They should, but they don't realize that, hey, you know how long it takes to pay off a $300,000 loan, which is, by the way, is the only loan that you can't go bankrupt from, It's gonna, and you're making $39,000 a year. Oh, yes. And by the way, my, my daughter yeah. just graduated college in the spring, her, and a really good college, and her friends are making $39,000 a year, $42,000 a year. Like, they're not making a lot of money. So I think a lot of the, what used to feed the workers now feeds into this, into this educational nightmare of college debt and loans and all that. That's what's kind of nice about what we're doing at Origin, because at Origin, you don't need a college education. You can go get a job and get a skill and have a career. Right, and we got people that have careers now that have learned a skill that's a highly valuable skill, and they don't have any debt because they didn't go and study basket weaving for four years at forty two thousand dollars a year. Basket weaving always gets a bad rap. Mm. Oh, it, it almost seems actually like basket weaving would be a better skill than some of the degrees that people are getting. I, right, I would basket say weaving would be a true. skill. You could sell baskets. Yeah. But did, don't right. you think we need to stop harassing basket weavers? <laughs> no, bro. It's almost. But it feels. Ah, bro, I don't know. I'm not an economist mm-hmm. or nothing like this. You know that. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of seems like that. There's certain times, and then the education is kind of like trying to facilitate those times, right? Then you have people running the education, um, and then the times change, and then the education just follows up with the with the change, but just way, way too late. Like. Might even be fifty yeah. to well, seventy years late. Oh well, yeah, for and then sure. think so now. Now think about it. Consider that. So now the now it changes from like just straight up factory workers to you know a little bit more advanced workers types, mm-hmm. right? So now it's like okay, really the change that should have been made a long time ago is for for you to be influenced to go to college, get a higher education, right? Because you have higher level jobs. Generally speaking, you know, lower level jobs always going to exist and all this stuff. But just generally speaking, it's just general. So, boom, now everyone should be going to college a long time ago. They should be doing that. They want to get a degree. That creates way more opportunities. Back then, there's not all these crazy degrees. Like, now there's plenty of degrees. When I went to college, like, they started doing this program called Liberal Freaking Studies, right? Mm-hmm. Which, in concept, <laughs> concept, it, it's, it's good. The, con- mm-hmm. the concept is good. But, bro, all you got to do is get your little degree approved. And you can just study whatever you want, essentially, mm-hmm. and be like, yeah, my degree is in this. As long as the title was approved, you can get it. It's called liberal studies, but it's, and then you have a title for it. Again, you start doing it just for the sake of getting a degree. Bro, when you get out of college, you, know, you, you could be jammed up. That's what I just said, bro. Exactly right. But okay, okay. And that's the later part of it. But so now you have, and when I say it's a social thing, 
or it feels like a social thing. It's kind of like people are still stuck in that little zone that's like it is beneficial to go to college because there was yes, a point where they're stuck where it in is. that zone. They right. think Socially. they think that they yeah. think that oh oh what are you doing? That's, I'm going to go to college because that's, that's going to put me on the path. Yeah, and they don't realize that it's not the path. That's not the reality right not now. Reality so right much now. has changed, and then you have all these people who, um, like back in the day, you said people can drop out of high school and get a job yep. because yeah, you can drop out of high school because all you have to do is know how to read and do basic arithmetic and get a job yep. somewhere like at a factory or. Or at a, you know one of the jobs that were freaking prevalent in the for those times, as times change, you need a little bit more education now for these jobs. True and untrue. Well, there are always still, exceptions. Guess what? There's, I mean, there there is massive jobs that are you know carpentry, concrete, yes, sir. plumber, yeah. electrician, auto mechanic, driver. Like there's all these jobs that you definitely do not need a college education yes, to have. Yes, you sir. do not need it. Oh yeah. And those are awesome jobs and they those those people go out and build America. But to your point, are to you your, talking about right now though? I'm talking about right now okay, those okay, jobs okay. fully exist, but right here's now. here's yeah. to your point. A lot of people would say, "Okay, hey, what should I do with my life?" And the first nine things that come up on their list are go to college, go to college, go to college, go to college. Whereas when I was in high school, maybe the first thing would be go to college, but the second thing was like become an apprentice electrician. Mm. You know, like I took electricity in high school. And you're saying that was kind of the social kind of I think that was way more normal. There wasn't wasn't the mandatory track to college. And I think nowadays, almost every kid is being told, go to college, go to college, go to college, instead of saying, hey, you can go and become an apprentice electrician, and that's a freaking great job, and you can have a great life, and you can contribute to society in a massive way, doing something you enjoy. Because look, when I was in high school, I didn't want to be looking at books, yeah. right? No, I, wanted, yeah. I would much rather be an electrician. Yeah. Much rather be an electrician. Yeah, and... and yeah, I think the zone where, okay, basically break it into to these two things, where the social influence, like, hey, you should go to college or you should whatever, or it's okay not to go to college, you can mm-hmm. just get a job here or whatever, this, that passes and changes through time. The social, to me, the social part is lagging, like way behind the reality of yes. it. That's what I'm saying. Yes. So there was a little zone where it was the best to go to college if yes. you had that opportunity. That was the yes. zone. And right now, socially, the influence is still in that zone. Yeah. They're still saying it's starting to change, though. You yeah. you start yeah. to hear people being yeah. like, hey, yeah. college, you know, is a waste of money, influential yeah. people saying that stuff. Yes, but it's I think it's still there. The reality on the streets is, bro, yeah. college is for a handful of people, and that's it. Yeah. I want to say, yeah, there's people out there that are actually hiring. They're not looking for college degrees. Yep. And I'm talking yes, like I think Peter Thiel's one of them. Oh, for and he's yeah. out there saying, oh, we'll test. I don't know if they got a testing program, but they're saying we just want smart people. It doesn't yeah. matter whether you went to college or not. Yep. That's yes, sir. freaking legit. And here's how you know. Here's how you can kind of. It's kind of like a finger on the pole. Like this is how you can kind of tell that people are still in the zone of like college is a good thing. You can be like, oh, yeah, that guy, he has a degree from from Harvard. It's like a total appeal appeal to authority. Mm-hmm. The college being mm-hmm. the authority, by the way, you don't even have to say what he has a degree from. Yeah. You can say he has a degree from Harvard. And that automatically, I'm not saying that's it, but I'm just saying that in and of itself is a point, yeah. like a positive thing. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yep. You're when right. we get and past I, this zone, they'll I, be like, so? What's yeah, it in? What's he doing? I, you know what's what, funny you know? is I actually hear that right now. I'm starting to... 
I and people that I know for sure are starting to hear like, oh, the, oh, that person has their MBA or whatever. Right. Like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So yeah. we're already getting there. It's we're not getting there, but yeah. we're moving in that direction. I hear those comments. Check uh, back to education here. Finally, and perhaps the most fatal of all, the private school's ethic of honor and fair play, so admirable in itself, leads to disastrous results when mistakenly imputed to those like Hitler who play the game by different set of rules. So these kids were told, hey, you got to follow the rules and this we play with honor. And then Hitler's like, oh, really? Watch this. Um, this particular weakness of military endeavor continued to feature in many subsequent campaigns. Indeed, is no exaggeration to say that an absence of adequate uh, reconnaissance, the refusal to believe intelligence reports, and a general horror of spying have tended to keep our armies wrapped in cocoons of catastrophic ignorance. This fatal preference for honorable ignorance rather than useful knowledge gleaned by devious means was not confined to soldiers in the field, but as an attitude of mind, permeated the highest levels of all military intelligence. So another thing, this is what these kids got educated to do. They got educated to live with honor. That means we're not going to sneak around. We're not going to cheat. You know, I had to watch out for that. You know, sometimes you'd get the like, well, IEDs for cowards. Like, okay, we get it. That's for cowards. But Wait, guess what's what? What's for cowards? IEDs, roadside bombs, oh, right, right, booby right, traps. Got it, got it. You know, that, that's a coward. Yeah, yeah, sure. It is. Guess what? We have to contend with it. Yeah. Just because it's cowardly doesn't mean it's going to go away. It doesn't mean it doesn't produce dead bodies and maimed yeah. bodies. Is it cowardly? Yes, it is. How do we counter it? Mm. So you put some sniper overwatches on some roads and schwack some people. That's how you counter it. <laughs> like a reformed because enormously successful burglar who self-righteously puts down his jemmy to take up proselytizing on the evils of crime, we took to repudiating these very traits, push, cleverness, ruthlessness, and sheer naked aggression that had put us where, where we are. The reason that, so what he's saying is, you like a criminal that sort of makes it and like all of a sudden puts down his thieving tools and starts saying, you know, thieving is bad and you oh, should yeah, live yeah. a righteous way. Yeah. But he's forgetting about how he got there. Yeah. And what he's, what he, the point he's making here is we can have a tendency to do that. Like, mm. hey, in war, if you gotta be brutal. We're, we're on top because we were brutal. Yeah. We're on top because we spied and you know broke shit and killed people. That's what got us here. And we can't now sit up here and say, well, that's all wrong. Right, right. Hmm. You got to be careful about that. Yeah. Um, now we get to part three of this book. Well, interestingly enough, you want to hear what quote it starts off? There's no bad regiments, only bad officers. Ah, we've heard Napoleon say it. We've heard Hackworth say it. Yes, sir. We've heard Echelon Front say it. We, we, we know that quote. Is an extreme ownership. Well, it's, we use a different quote. No bad teams, only bad leaders is what we said. Mm-hmm. Did we steal it? Mm, yes, we stole it from Hackworth. Mm-hmm. Who'd Hackworth steal it from? Field Marshal Lord Slim, who was in World War One, World War Two, uh, wounded three times. And guess what? He stole it from Napoleon. So we're stealing it. We're using it. Mm-hmm. Can't steal what's free, though, can you? We're attributing. Mm-hmm. Also, too much of history is written as though men had no feelings, no childhood, no bodily senses. Which is, which is something that I have tried with all my might with this podcast to make sure that history is written 
and it's clear that these men had feelings had bodily senses had childhoods and beyond that had hopes and dreams for the future a lot of history is not written like that section here called the worst and the best so now what he does is he starts pointing out some and this is why I can start moving a little bit faster I told you before we even started recording like hey there's a big chunk of the book we're gonna cover we're gonna cover in one podcast because he starts going into a lot of details and it's worth reading you have to get the book if you want to read all these things but he starts pointing out the worst and the best of some of these military leaders he said this about Hitler or does John Strawson said this about Hitler in a war from which so much human error had been eliminated by technological advances alone human error was still the principal factor in determining war's outcome Hitler slipknot a little bit about Hitler Hitler's particular brand of military incompetence is precisely what one would expect he showed a total unconcern for the physical and psychological welfare of his men and his armies and we man when we covered Stalingrad remember when we covered Stalingrad on this podcast actually a book called Stalingrad written by a Nazi soldier and they were they were listening on the radio as they were surrounded and they were listening to Hitler talk about praising their dying to the last man that's like insane uh number two his this imperviousness to human suffering which resulted in such enormous wastage of his own forces was a contributory factor in his stubborn refusal to ever relinquish gained ground three from his extreme ethnocentrism came another well-known form of military incompetence, that which results from a gross underestimation of the enemy, and in particular, of the ability of civilian populations to withstand the effects of war. Yep. Thinking that your uh, you know, Nazi soldiers are just superior, and then you come up against the Russian civilians, and they're like, what? <laughs> Won't play? And, and thinking that they're just going to fold. Thinking that the Russians are just the Russian civilian populace and and even their Red Army, which is you know made up of you know peasant soldiers, they're going to fold under the might of the of the Nazis. Mm. You might want to check yourself, homie. While many of foreign, while many of Hitler's decisions were military disastrous, his underlying ego weakness and fear of criticism eventually in several other traits, which are undesirable to say the least in a military senior commander. He promoted his aides and advisors for their sycophancy rather than their ability. Just promoting people because they sucked up to him. He refused to accept, believe, or even listen to unpalatable intelligence. And when things got went really wrong, he was first to find scapegoats, the opposite of extreme ownership. Promoting people because they kissed your ass. Not listening to intel that's coming in. This is having a closed mind, being an idiot. <laughs> Like his henchman Himmler, even Hitler could on occasion show that over-control of aggression, that procrastination which has incapacitated some other authoritarian military commanders, perhaps his most disastrous decision of the war was when he halted the German advance before Dunkirk, thus allowing the British to escape. Finally, on, on April 22, 1945, Hitler failed as a military commander in a way that he had never failed before. In abdicating the responsibility, he betrayed his command. And if you're a band in leadership and duty like so, yeah, he quit. He he's the ultimate quitter. Dior'd. Dior'd drop on request on April twenty second, nineteen forty five, and then a few days later on April thirtieth, killed himself. He could also commit 
enormous blunders and these when they occurred seem less a product of stupidity than of his total sustained all pervasive authoritarian so that's an important point Hitler made all these mistakes and did all this dumb shit but he wasn't dumb mm. what was driving that what was driving that his ego yeah his ego his his psychopathy his authoritarian nature all those things not stupid mm. so you can be really smart and do really dumb things because you're authoritarian, because your ego is out of control, etc. Some good examples. Um, General Sir James Wolfe. He was bitterly and unfashionably opposed to what he called the spirit-breaking tactics of harsh punishment and drill. Was quite prepared to disobey orders if these conflicted with what he knew was right. Now, he's just going through like these are the opposite of authoritarian personalities this guy sir james wolf i'm gonna burn through some of these at the risk of making himself unpopular he forced his officers to attend the attend to the welfare of their men to visit their living quarters have regard for their health and generally get to know them as fellow human beings wellington next guy he highlights here wellington did not evince signs of emotional restriction did not remain unmoved by human suffering suffering did not seek popularity was unimpressed by bull and did not seek scapegoats for his military setbacks this is a good leader he spurned the decorations of authority large staffs sentries gold braids so he didn't want to be all dressed up wellington's self-confidence is also reflected in his refusal to make scapegoats of others Thus of the Burgos fiasco, he said, I see that a disposition already exists to blame the government for the failure of the siege of Burgos. It was entirely my own act. Thankfully, he didn't put that into a book and call it extreme ownership. Otherwise, I would have been kind of out of luck. (laughs) Because that's what he did, right? Here's the bad situation that unfolded during this siege, and he took ownership of it. Didn't blame anybody. As usual, after a battle, his mood was set by the losses, not the glory. On the morning after the siege, another Wellington showed himself to his deeply astonished staff. He visited the dead, and on seeing so many of his finest men destroyed, he broke down and wept. That's not authoritarian. Finally, he displayed an open, an open mind to new ideas, quick to innovate and see advantages in the progress of technology. He was remarkably laissez-faire regarding the dress of his soldiers. Thirdly, he did not commit that cardinal error of so many military incompetence, underestimation of the enemy. He took infinite plans, pains in military planning, left nothing to chance, selected officers for their efficiency, always did recon. So you can see what he's getting at here. Shaka, the Zulu king. Of his generalship, it has been written, Shaka's particular genius lay in his meticulous personal attention to detail and sheer hard work. If at all possible, he always insisted on inspecting everything himself. In every one of his critical battles, he insisted on personal reconnoitering the ground and the disposition of enemy forces. He invariably checked all reports by procuring collateral evidence. Shaka could also be humane. He talks about Shaka actually... um, being pretty brutal to his men, which I don't, I was a little bit thinking, well, why are you trying to give this guy as this great example? Um, those who hesitated to follow his example and painful initiation were instantly clubbed to death. <laughs> Seems a little authoritarian <laughs> to me, bro. Bit, Dixon, yeah. where are you at? Well, I mean, we're cutting some slack here. So here's the deal. Uh, 
Another example of his flexibility and refusal to be dominated by tradition was Shaka's banning of sandals for his fighting men. By making them run barefoot, a considerable and by no means popular break with tradition, he invested his army with the speed of movement far in excess of that achieved by his enemies. The displeasure he incurred through this innovation was hardly reduced by an order to his warriors that they should harden their feet on the parade ground strewn with thorns. Those who hesitated to follow in his example in this painful tradition were instantly clubbed to death. Seems worth being a little authoritarian there, bro. (laughs) But then it says this, Shaka could also be humane as well as punitive in caring for his army to ensure that his fighting men were kept warm, well-rested, and well-fed, and orderly was provided for every three soldiers under his command. No battle was fought without adequate supplies of food, water, and bark dressings being assembled at strategic points beforehand. It can be summed up as autocratic, totally non-authoritarian, high in achievement motivation, and yet capable of great warmth and sympathy. According to Ritter, this guy that wrote about him, he was highly emotional and sentimental behind a facade of iron iron self-discipline. The fact that he was the finest composer of songs, the leading dancer and wittiest punster suggests an artist who would naturally have a highly strong nature and more sensitive than the common run of the Nyungi race. So there's Shaka. Napoleon. The evidence suggests that though he was ambitious, ruthless, devious, unscrupulous, grandiose, despotic, Machiavellian, dictatorial, and autocratic, he was not authoritarian. Again, this is where he's getting into some semantics here that's kind of like, Napoleon could be the reverse of extra punitive. The fault, he argued, lay not so much with the men as with himself. So he, he, when things were, didn't go the way he wanted, he often said it was his fault, cool. I think he's stretching, man, on Napoleon a little bit. Because <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's a scale, right? And, yeah. and Napoleon, I think, had an open mind when it came to combat, yeah. you know? But I think he was an egomaniac. I mean, we have a free, what's that? A Napoleon complex, right? Yeah. Like, you're all little and you know, trying to be big. Yeah. Stern and imperious to, in his business hours, Napoleon was all ease and sunshine to his intimates. They admired his pleasant wit. <laughs> His unaffected gaiety, his rich and brilliant handing of moral and political themes. So you're trying to make him out to be a little less authoritarian than he was, in my opinion. But some of these guys, even the guy Chaka Zulu, he was, maybe he was authoritarian in certain ways. That's what, that's what I just said. It's and a scale, super right? super whatever in other ways. And it kind of find, struck a balance. Yeah, so like back to um, Chaka, he, he would be not, what is the one, what's the opposite of authoritarian? Authoritarian, liberal, whatever. Yeah, anti authoritarian. Yeah, he was anti. Mm-hmm. Except when it came to those feet, man. Yeah. Those feet got to, you know, like you got to, mm-hmm. like how you guys say, you got to hold the, the line club. on some stuff. Yep. You know, those radios, you got to know how to program your radios. It's true. But the patches, yeah. man, that we'll slide, that a, little slide a little bit. So Shaka was like that with a lot of stuff. So you me know? and Shaka kind of keeping it real. Kind of <laughs> keeping it real. Kind of keeping it real, you know. But that's how, right? That's yeah. the dichotomy. Yeah. Right? That's the dichotomy. And I think that's, uh, he's trying to point out some of that dichotomy. I think he's leaning to try and show these good leaders as being less authoritarian. Yeah. Um, because Napoleon, I mean, sure, you know, Hitler, Napoleon, these guys, like, yeah, they lost and they lost huge and they're bad. But they did some effective oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, Napoleon, I mean, Napoleon won a lot. <laughs> And Hitler won a lot too, man. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I mean, so, Blitzkrieg kicking it off took over giant swaths of Europe. Napoleon did the same thing. So yeah. there was definitely some 
they did some shit that was that they want. It was effective. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, there's other people that were totally authoritarian that did authoritarian shit and law and and also won. Yeah. The Crimean War, mm. right? With the Brits, the Brits were doing the dumbest, most horrible authoritarian ego-driven moves and getting guys killed by the bushel, and yet they still were able to win. Mm. Um. This is a little bit more about Napoleon. Finally, like many of the other commanders on our list, Napoleon was without that vanity. This like struck me, bro. Mm. Without that vanity, which betokens a weak ego, was notoriously careless about his dress, had a wide range of intellectual interests, and promoted his subordinates on the basis of their efficiency. Okay, so that's cool. Makes sense. Nor did he display the debilitating over-control of aggression, which has on occasions paralyzed warlike behavior of less successful commanders. Nelson. Nelson did not display a compulsive concern with orderliness of his dress, was anxious to give pleasure to everyone about him, distinguishing each turn by some act of kindness and chiefly those who seemed to require it the most. So Nelson seems like he's just a really good guy. Any residual doubts one might have regarding Nelson's freedom from the crippling effects of a weak ego should be resolved by considering his most famous characteristic, disobedience. Possessing boundless moral courage, he was himself prepared to disobey if he thought it to the advantage of his country. And often he was right. Nelson was, in fact, always urging others, even allies, superiors, and officials of the army, to disregard their orders, if necessary, in what he thought was to be the general interest of the cause. This is one of the best quotes on decentralized command I have ever heard in my life. So this is Nelson. Nelson's own view of this matter was uncomplicated. As he said to the Duke of Clarence, to serve my king and to destroy the French, I consider as the great order of all from which little ones spring. And if one of these little ones militate against it, for who can exactly tell at a distance, I go back and obey the great order and object, end quote. That's a beautiful understanding of decentralized command. Here's what we're trying to get done. And there's a bunch of different ways you can get it done. If I'm telling you to do something but it doesn't quite make sense in supporting the strategic goal, don't do it. Do something else. So that's a non-authoritarian mindset, which is good to go. T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. Of his generalship, Liddell Hart wrote, Lawrence can bear comparison with Marlborough or Napoleon in that vital faculty of generalship, the power of grasping instantly the picture of the ground and situation of relating the one to the other and the local to the general. Oh, he was able to see what was happening, not just what's happening right there, but see it in the big picture. He was able to detach, take a step back, look around. I think strategic Liddell Hart considered that Lawrence also showed the same profound, quote, profound understanding of human nature. The same power of commanding affection while commanding energy, and the same consummate blend of diplomacy with strategy. Had a cool head. Liddell Hart also considered that Lawrence, the most widely read of generals, was more was more steeped in knowledge of war than any other generals of the last war. In personality, this one read a little bit more because. Well, because of this, in personality, Lawrence is probably the least authoritarian senior commander the world has ever known. He was totally without personal ambition, 
refused promotion, honors, and awards for himself, and deplored the pomp, vanities, and ritualized bowing and scraping which one associates with the power structure of the hierarchical command systems. We like this guy, right? Out of the gate, you're like, yeah, we're we're down with this guy. The fact that he could renounce his name for that of Ross and later Shaw and happily resume his role of a lowly ranker after achieving worldwide fame indicates a degree of self-effacement quite unique amongst military men. Contrary to a characteristic predisposition of authoritarian individuals, Lawrence disliked interfering with other men's freedom. You can't impose on other people. You shouldn't impose on other people. You shouldn't mess with their freedom. He disliked giving orders and in fact exercised effective command largely through the tendering of advice. Have you ever, have you ever heard Leif Babin explain how many times I gave him a direct order? Uh, yes, I have, I have heard him explain well, how many number? times. Zero. Zero times. Yeah. That this advice was acted upon suggests that by his personality he achieved a level of leadership rarely attained by military commanders. He himself was prepared to obey foolish orders but disliked passing these on to others. As Liddell Hart remarks, in war such orders are often the result in useless sacrifice of men's lives. In peace they often contribute to the sterilization of men's reason. Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) You bark orders, you make people do what you want them to what you want them to do, you're gonna sterilize their brain. Lawrence was a great respecter of reason and considered that the possession of knowledge was of primary importance for a military leader. In his opinion, quote, the perfect general would know everything in heaven and earth, end quote. By the same token, this most open-minded of men deplored the closed and vacuous minds of his military compatriots, men who displayed a, quote, fundamental Crippling incuriousness. So there you go. T.E. Lawrence. We got Slim, who this thing kicked off with. General Slim. Like so many generals, when plans have gone wrong. Oh, we're taking a little bit of ownership here. Like so many generals, this is a quote. When so many generals, like so many generals, when plans have gone wrong, I could find plenty of excuses, but only one reason myself. When two courses of action were open to me, I had not chosen, as a good commander should, the bolder. I had taken counsel of my fears. Patent reference. There is no evidence here of that telltale defense projection. And even though he had ample opportunity for making scapegoats of those subordinates who had given, given the advice which ended in failure. So you got another guy, Slim. Had he written a book and taken, you know, given it a cool title like Extreme Ownership? <clears throat> We'd be in a different spot right now. <laughs> Taken into account with other traits, his warmth towards his family, his absence of rigidity, his parsimony with the lives of his men, his ability to improvise, his popularity with the troops, and relative lack of concern regarding his popularity with his equals, it should come as no surprise to learn that this chivalrous, autocratic, and most efficient of generals enjoyed a happy childhood, apparently unmarred by those stresses and strains which may weaken the ego and stunt the personality. He kind of, in, I've been skipping these parts a little bit. I guess I'm being a little bit biased, but I'm skipping a lot of the, the psychoanalysis because, mm-hmm. you know, that, and I'm just giving you that little taste of them. If you want to get some of that, you got to kind of get into it here a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this next section is exceptions to the rule. Got a little quote here from Rommel. 
One must not judge everyone in the world by his qualities as a soldier. Otherwise, we should have no civilization. That's Rommel to his son. (laughs) Interesting. Mm -hmm. Incompetence is not confined to those who were extreme in their ineptitude, but may operate along a line of a continuum of military excellence from worst to the best senior commanders. The military shortcomings of Montgomery Kitchener and Haig and their positions along a dimension of authoritarianism authoritarianism are perfectly correlated. So this is what you were saying earlier. It's not like, oh, this is a, you're either authoritarian or you're not. Mm-hmm. You could be anywhere on this spectrum. And as we have been discussing, you want to have some level of authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. You just don't want too much. It's got to be a balance. But some people can be, oh, they're a little bit in the red. Mm-hmm. Right? Some people full green. Maybe some some people too much green. Too much. They don't even make it. Yeah. But I think in the military, people that are far green don't even join the military. Yeah, right. It's we got to remember that people yeah. are not even in there. Yeah. So you already have a composite of people that are a little bit, at least in the middle. Maybe a little bit orange. Some people leaning in the red. Yeah. But it's a it's a continuum. Um, talking about Montgomery, and again, you, you got to get if you want the details of this, read get the book. It's not my purpose to debate Montgomery's greatness. Suffice it to say that while not without blemishes, he was in the main a highly competent commander and as such needs to be considered in present context. Does he or does he not support the hypothesis that competence depends upon an absence of authoritarianism and its associated traits? So so that's what we're really hearing there is that the more authoritarian you are, the worse you're gonna be. Unless you have zero authoritarianism. And he points out some things that makes him not authoritarianism authoritarianistic. Here's Montgomery lacked those obsessive traits which tend to accompany authoritarianism. He's not particularly mean or particularly obstinate and judging from his own dress and lenient attitude towards that of his troops. He did not harbor any compulsive urge for a bull. In this, as in other matters, his approach was essentially realistic. Seems that whatever else he may be, Montgomery does not evince a well-documented signs of authoritarianism. And yet, even in this case, there remains the undisputable fact that for all his greatness as a military commander, Montgomery did have serious shortcomings which could not be attributed to a lack of professional ability. So Montgomery did some jacked up things, and we covered it in one of the earlier podcasts. We also covered it on a podcast not about this book. (sighs) These lapses were an inability to get along with many of his military colleagues. Like Kitchener, he had a knack of making himself enormously unpopular with his contemporaries and preferred the company of younger, more junior officers. It was a bad sign. I was talking about this on the Academy the other day, extremeownership.com. Somebody was talking about how they can't get along. If you're not getting along with people, you're doing a bad job. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you getting along with people? Mm-hmm. You should be getting along with people. It's part of your job. Build relationships. What's happening with you? Montgomery's second shortcoming was that he sometimes allowed his own desire for personal glory to influence planning. A military plan tainted by an attempt to satisfy the commander's ego is unlikely to be the best plan. An irrelevant factor has been introduced into the calculation. Clearly, that's jacked up. Montgomery's next shortcoming presents something of a paradox. It concerns a matter of communication. For a man who is adept at simplifying the apparently complex, whose ability to extract the essentials from a host of irrelevant factors was second to none, who could communicate his intentions and issue orders to his subordinates with a lucidity that left no room for misinterpretation, and who could write his memoirs with such a style that puts most generals to shame, it is extraordinary that he should have been almost incapable of explaining 
explaining so himself to those above him in the chain of command. <laughs> kind of crazy. Got a whole big explanation on, on Montgomery and where some of that stuff came from. Fast forward a little bit to Kitchener. Kitchener, who became Secretary of State in the First World War, had, according to Philip Magnus, two basic attributes, an unparalleled thoroughness and an unparalleled drive. He was an individual individualist of great conceptions whose hard and selfless nature was capable at times of kindness, sympathy, and even affection. These traits, his excessive drive, Lord Curzon once described Kitchener as this molten mass of devouring energy. His individualism and his refusal to conform the originality of his thinking and the occasional flashes of underlying warmth and generosity are hard to reconcile with the notion of authoritarianism. So he's got Montgomery who has some authoritarianism. Kitchener's a little bit more authoritarianism. And as we as we push through his authoritarianism, from Kitchener, for all his greatness, Kitchener seems to have been a victim of the repressive forces implanted in him as a child, presumably as a marionette of his father. And then mm-hmm, psychoanalytics going on. But what were those traits, regardless of where they came from? His aloofness, his unpopularity with many of his fellow officers, his failure to work as part of a team, and most damaging of all, his latter-day indecisiveness and hesitancy in directing Gallipoli campaign must be ascribed to defects of the personality rather than intellect. And again, it's just interesting to point out that authoritarianism, you'd think that makes people make calls, but it actually freaks them out in these pressure situations because they don't want to get they don't they don't they don't handle failure, they don't yeah, know what yeah. to do, and they just they don't want to do anything. Yeah. Back off. Yeah. Whereas somebody that's a little less authoritarian is like, okay, you know what? We've got to make a call. Here, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Now we get to Hague and trying to answer the question whether the recurring features of military incompetence derive from aspects of the authoritarian personality even in a commander who ultimately emerged victorious. One cannot do better than consider the case of Douglas Haig, commander-in-chief of the British armies on the Western Front between 1915 and 1918. Judging from the war of words which has raged between his detractors and devotees, there was never a more controversial military commander. Here's some quotes. Haig, Britain's number one war criminal, expected Germans to advance in this attack and at the same time slow at the same slow pace of his own clumsily planned results another quote he seemed to be most highly equipped thinker in the British army that's totally different quote another quote Haig perhaps failed to see that a dead man cannot advance and that to replace him is only to provide another corpse Here's another quote. It is indeed strange that the man whose stubbornness in the offensive had all but ruined us on the Somme should from August 1918 onwards have been become the driving force of the Allied armies. That is crazy. You freaking conduct this horrible operation. So many people die and you just continue being in charge and directing operations. Haig was unimaginative. Maybe he was competent according to his lights, but these were dim confidence of divine approval appeared to satisfy him. Nothing can excuse the casualties of the Somme and Passchendaele. World War One, freaking nightmare. So what's up with his personality? Did Haig evince those character traits that are associated with authoritarianism? He certainly had most of them. For start, he was conservative, conventional, and in his attitude toward the French, ethnocentric. His diary and dispatches suggest he was unemotional and totally anti-interceptive, i.e. not able, not one to reflect upon his own motives. He was manifestly lacking in compassion towards his fellow men. It's just so important as you hear these things just to think 
what do you think a military commander should be like and what should a military commander actually be like? He was a confirmed believer in the direction of events by supernatural powers and reserved to the point of being verbally almost inarticulate. Haig also betrayed that triad of traits which, according to contemporary research, defines the obsessive character and correlated and is correlated with authoritarianism. He was obstinate, orderly, and mean. About his obstinacy, little further need to be said. From the beginning to the end, his handling of the third Ypres betokened an obstinacy of statuesque proportions. This guy would just stubborn, never change his mind. We're sticking with the plan. For the second trait, in his dress, habits, and appearance, Haig was immaculate, orderly, and quite probably the cleanest man on the Western Front, a contemporary of of his at Clifton remembered him particularly for his cleanliness, a remarkable attribute to be recalled of a fellow schoolboy. And for an example of his love of bull, there's this excerpt from a cavalryman, cavalryman's letter. Quote, he had a personal escort consisting of a full troop of his own regiment. They were easily the smartest thing in France, not a buckle out of place, stripes of gold for the NCOs, silver, great silver skull and crossbones, End quote. Other writers have commented on his meticulous attention to minute detail and his habit of planning each day according to a set pattern. So there you go. And he breaks out basically saying Montgomery, out of those three, was the best and had the least authoritarian nature. Kitchener, a little bit more authoritarian, a little bit worse performance. And then finally you get to Haig total authoritarian attitude and well the worst example and the worst leader and now we're getting to the uh, the final chapter of this book six podcast deeps by the way <laughs> yes. I went hard in the paint Amen. retreat this one's called hail ye indomitable heroes hail Despite all of your generals, ye prevail. That's from a Landor who wrote a poem about the Crimean heroes. And I, I just was talking about this, right? The Brits won. The Brits and their allies beat the Russian despite their shitty leadership. Uh, Clausewitz, this dof- difficulty in seeing things correctly, which is one of the greatest sources of friction in war makes things appear quite different from what was expected. Good job, Klauswitz. You know what you better learn how to do if you want to see things correctly? You better learn to detach. You better learn to take a step back. You better learn to put your ego in check. You better learn to get control over your emotions so you're not seen through an egotistical or emotional lens. It is not the intention to leave a comparable impression of generalship, but rather to show that the nature of interspecies in the, that the nature of interspecies aggression predisposes the leaders of armies and navies to certain sorts of error. So he's saying, look, when you start fighting and killing each other, it leads to certain types of error, just in its own right. Then he says, from dem- far from diminishing the stature of senior military commanders, the existence of this predisposition makes the performance of the majority of soldiers and sailors doubly credible. So it's so fr- there's so much natural disaster about to happen that when someone does a good job, it's you should get double credit, two gold stars. 
for being able to pull it off when there's all this all this natural gravity towards chaos, mayhem, destruction, ego, authoritarian personalities, like all that stuff is going on. And yet some people, most military people from the bottom to the top do a good job and overcome that. So you should get double the credit. The theory, and this is all kind of a conclusion here. The theory advanced in this book starts from the position that, by its very nature, military incompetence cannot be attributed to the dullness of intellect. We've hammered that point home. There is, it seems, a reoccurring pattern to military mishaps, which defies any explanation in terms of the bloody fool theory. So these people aren't stupid. It is, in its stead, is tentatively suggested that the syndrome occurs through the enormous difficulties of professionalizing the instinctual activity of intraspecies aggression. This professionalism entails the growth of militarism, that collection of rules and conventions whereby hostility is controlled and anxiety reduced. So you've got this system set up to put command in place to reduce anxiety, to overcome some natural instincts. That's what the military is set up to do. Not surprisingly, a military career attracts a minority of people with these sort of anxieties within a military organization. Their neurotic needs are gratified. They, for their part, help to reinforce those very aspects of militarism which are so congealed to their requirements. In return, as it were, for fitting in so well, they may rise to positions of considerable power. Once there, however, they become incapacitated by the very characteristics which hasten to their ascent. You come in, you're authoritarian, you love it. You come in because you're authoritarian and you wanna fit into that, then you get in there and you're gratified because that and you're advanced because you're authoritarian. And if you make it all the way up the chain of command, the very authoritarian traits that you have are actually a disaster. So this is a horrible thing. (laughs) And it took me six podcasts to get that out. So much for a theory based on past history. Has it, and he kind of goes like, hey, look, I've showed you all these examples, which this book, 450 pages of this book is examples. And But he says, so much for this theory based on a past history. Has it any relevance for the future? Since armies and navies have changed out of all recognition, perhaps the sorts the sorts of military incompetence described in these pages are no longer likely to occur. In fact, the evidence suggests this to be a forlorn hope. So this shit still happens. Some of the same sorts of mistakes occur now as the as blighted the lives of soldiers 100 years ago. In Vietnam, in three weeks, in 1968, the Tet Offensive alone cost the Americans 500 dead and the South Vietnamese 165,000 dead with 2 million refugees. Why did it happen? One reason was the inability to respond to unexpected military intelligence. Fast forward a little bit. Any doubts as to whether the three factors of remote control, he goes into a thing explaining how some of the changes that have taken place. One of them is remote control, meaning we now have radios, we can micromanage people out on the battlefield. We make these big swollen staffs and and all kinds of weaponry. Like, has this helped? Now, do we have multiple people on a staff? Maybe they can help sort through some of these people that are incompetent. Or we have the power to like see what's happening on the battlefield. Maybe we can make adjustments through remote control. And we've got all these resources and weapons. Maybe that helps. So here's what he said doesn't help. And he says, any doubts to whether these three factors from remote control, swollen staffs, and a wealth of resources make for incompetence are removed by the contemplation of Vietnam. 
in this most ill-conceived and horrible of wars, there was the commander-in-chief, Lyndon Johnson, aided by his advisors, dreaming up policies and even selecting targets at a nice safe distance of 12,000 miles. And there was the man on the spot, General Westmoreland, a by no means unintelligent military commander, but bemused by the sheer weight of destructive energy and aggressive notions supplied by his president. Together, the Machiavellian mind of the one coupled with the traditional military mind of the other produced a pattern of martial lunacy so abject and appalling that it eventually did for both of them. Like the Boer leaders a half century earlier, earlier, the versatile General Giap, this is the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese commander, and his commander-in-chief, a little old man with a wispy beard, Ho Chi Minh, made a huge professionally trained and over-equipped army of their enemies look utterly ridiculous and their leaders helplessly irate, unfettered by traditional militarism, lacking in excessive brute force, and without an obsession with capturing real estate, Ho and Giap relied on poor men's strategy, surprise, deception, and the ability to melt away. They relied on the fact that Westmoreland would expand, expend his energies, swatting wherever they had last been, heard of while they got ready to sting him somewhere else. <sighs> yeah, and it's it's one of the most fascinating thing, and when we covered um, General Mao's, like Little Red Book, <laughs> one thing that's so fascinating about this is what the communists do to win wars is utilize decentralized command, and they do it great, and then for the way they run their government, they decide to make it authoritarian and centralized, which is crazy. <laughs> Which is crazy. And that's exactly what that spells out right there. When we're in battle, decentralized command, make things happen. Mm-hmm. Small units out there acting independently with freedom. And then, well, for the government, guess what? We're going to lock it all down. You're going to obey, obey, obey. This brings up yet another hazard of modern war government by committee. Take the decision to invade Cuba with a group of Cuban exiles, Bay of Pigs. In approving the CIA plan, Kennedy and his advisors made six assumptions. Each was wrong. They assumed that no one would guess the U.S. government was responsible for the invasion. In their contempt for the Cuban Air Force, they assumed it would be annihilated before the invasion began. They assumed that the small invasion force led by unpopular ex-officers from the Batista regime would be more than a match for Castro's, quote, weak army of 20,000 well-equipped Cuban troops. They assumed that the invasion would touch off a general revolt behind Castro's line. They assumed that even if unsuccessful in their primary objective, the exile forces, the exile force could hole up in Cuba and reinforce anti-Castro guerrillas. That's their plan. Do assumption, 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 assumption. In the event that each assumption proved a gross, in the event each assumption proved a gross miscalculation. Nothing went as planned. Nobody be- believed the CIA cover story. The ships carrying reserve ammunition for the invasion force failed to arrive. Two were sunk and two fled. By the second day, and the, the invaders were surrounded by Castro's army, and by the third day, they were either dead or behind bars. Seven months later, the United States recovered what was left of their invasion force for a ransom price to Castro of $53 million. Kennedy was stricken. How could I have been so stupid as to let them go ahead, he asked. As Sorensen wrote, his anguish was doubly deepened by the knowledge that the rest of the world was asking the same question. Arthur Schlesinger Jr. noted that Kennedy would sometimes refer incredulously to the Bay of Pigs, wondering how a rational and responsible government could have become involved in so 
an ill-starred adventure. Sunday, December 7th, 1941, had been set aside by Admiral Kimmel, Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet, for a friendly game of golf with his colleague, General Short. 96 of his ships of the American fleet slept at anchor in the harbor. American plane stood wingtip to wingtip on the tarmac. American servicemen were off duty enjoying weekend leave. By the end of the day, Pearl Harbor with its ships, planes, and military installations had been reduced to smoking ruins. 2,000 servicemen had been killed and many more wounded or missing. By the end of the day, Kimmel was offering to resign. Later, he was court-martialed, reprimanded, and demoted to a position where he's never again required to make decisions of any consequence. Pearl Harbor, like the Bay of Pigs, confirmed once again that military incompetence is more often a product of personality characteristics than of intellectual shortcomings. For these American disasters show very clearly that even combined intellects and specialized knowledge of highly intelligent and dedicated men are no proof against decisions so totally unrealistic and subsequently to tax the credulity of even those who had made them. Far from diminishing the chances of ineptitude, the group actually accentuates the effects of those very traits which may lead to incompetence in individual commanders. So you get, you get a group together, and you'd think that this would kind of cancel out, and I'd say, hey, Echo, I don't know if that's a good idea. No, it actually gets worse. It turns into groupthink. The symptoms of this process, which Janice terms groupthink, include, one, an illusion of invulnerability that becomes shared by most members of the group. Two, collective attempts to ignore or rationalize away Items of information which might otherwise lead the group to reconsider shaky but cherished assumptions. Three, an unquestioned belief in the group's inherent morality, thus enabling members to overlook ethical consequences of their decision. Four, stereotyping the enemy as either too evil for negotiation or too stupid and feeble to be a threat. You can see, you can like hear this, this happening in the room, right? You can hear the discussions happening. A shared illusion of unanimity in a majority viewpoint augmented by the false assumption that silence means consent. And six, self-appointed mind guards to protect the group from adverse information that might shatter complacency about the effectiveness and morality of their decisions. So that's what happens when you put a bunch of people that have these tendencies into a group together, it gets worse. And this is the last thing I'm gonna read from the book here. Finally, it is worth noting that the personality-determined malaise of groupthink produces once again those four most frequently occurring symptoms of past military incompetence. Wastage of manpower, overconfidence, underestimation of the enemy, and ignoring of intelligence reports. These, it seems, are the enduring hazards of professionalizing violence. And I can tell you these are not only the hazards of professionalizing violence, these are the enduring hazards 
for us as human beings, as leaders, that we can all fall into. And as you pointed out, this book is a is a big warning of what not to do. I, I got I said it was the last thing I'm going to read, but there's a, a look. This guy's funny, sure. and I did a bad job of relaying some of his humor. Here's the afterword of this book. I mean, this is the last thing I'm going to read from this book after six podcasts. Sure. He says, this is so British. He says, lest the reader should have doubted my qualifications to write this book, let me assure him that I have marked authoritarian traits, a weak ego, fear of failure motivation, and no illusions about the fact that I would have made a grossly incompetent general. It takes one to know one. And that was from the author in 1975. So a little bit of humor. And you know, he says it takes one to know one. But that's unfortunately not true. It's, un- it's unfortunately not true. If you think you're incompetent, there's a better chance that you're not incompetent. You can see where I'm going this. If you think you're incompetent, there's a ch- there's a better chance that you're not incompetent because if you think you're incompetent, you're you're actually humble and you're thinking, "Ooh, you know, I don't man, I need to, I need to listen to what other people have to say. I, I need to check myself, I need to learn, I need to open my mind and see what other information I can gather cuz I gather because I I feel like I might be unco- incompetent." Mm-hmm. So if you feel it's kind of when people ask me about the imposter syndrome. Yeah. What about imposter syndrome? Good. That means you're actually thinking, man, do I even believe need to be? I always had that. I always felt like, oh, man, if I'm, I need to be making decisions, I better do my homework. Mm-hmm. I better think this through. I better pay attention. So if you think you're incompetent, you probably aren't. But if you've been listening to these six straight podcasts and you've been thinking that this book is about all the incompetent <laughs> leaders around you, that's a little warning sign. Mm-hmm. Be careful because if you or in that mindset where you think, oh, man, I can't believe how jacked up all these other leaders are, but not you, red flag. Because chances are, this is about you. And look, here's the other red flag. It's a scale, right? You brought yeah. that up. It's a, it's a, it's a continuum. Yeah. And so we, all of us, even if you feel like you're pretty competent, you are under threat of being dragged to incompetency. Yeah. So all these little, this book is just a warning sign after warning sign after warning sign. And by the way, it's nothing new. Yeah. There's almost nothing new. There's one thing that I said, that's a new thought to me. I forget what it was. <clears throat> but in these 400 pages and whatever, we just did 12, 15 hours worth of podcasts. Mm. It's all, a, it's a rehash. It's a reinforcement of information that I already knew, that we already knew, that we talk about all the time, that we've seen in a bunch of other situations. Mm. It's a rehash, but we're all getting, you can, we can all get pulled mm. over there. We can get pulled towards that authoritarian mindset. Cause and you know why we get pulled towards the authoritarian mindset? We get pulled towards that authoritarian mindset because it seems easier. Yeah. It seems easier to say, shut up and do what I told you to do. Yeah. It seems easier to say, you know what? I'm not going to listen to that piece of information. Right. It seems easier to do that. It seems like the right move. Yeah. It seems easier to say, you know what, the competitor's never gonna be able to do what we're doing. Mm -hmm. It seems easier, and it's not. So you gotta get watched. You gotta watch out. You gotta pay attention. You gotta be careful. We all have to be on guard. 
incompetence. Incompetence is out there sort of ready to attack. It's ready. It's ready to attack. Yes, sir. And if you're not on guard, it'll grab you, it'll pull you down, and you'll be making bad decisions and getting people killed or ruining your business or ruining your marriage or ruining your life through incompetence. So we have to pay attention. Got to be careful. It's true. Uh, We got to stay on the path. Yes, sir. The path. Speaking of which, you know, what do you got for us? How do you advise we... We we avoid incompetence. Avoid Look, incompetence. Mental incompetence. Leadership yeah. incompetence. Mm. Physical incompetence. Well, yeah. We don't want to have that. What do you got for us? Echo Charles. That was the, uh, what do you call the Dunning-Kruger mm. effect, right, that you kind of referred to where the, 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 the it takes one to know one. That's not necessarily true. Yeah, yeah that it's, it feels like when you you think you know everything. Mm. It's like, it's easy to know everything when you think there's only like three or four things to know. But then. (laughs) When you start jujitsu and you're like, man, once I know how to stop that arm lock, I'll be good. Kind of be, yeah. Yeah. Because you got arm locked three times by some random, you know, blue belt. And you're like, oh, dude, I'm going to stop that. And then you get choked. Figured it out. Then you learn how to stop the choke. Then you get heel hooked. Yeah, Dave. You learn how to stop that heel hook. Yeah, it just goes on. It doesn't stop. Yeah, so the guy. Well, who, actually, it does stop after like you get heel hooked, arm locked, Ezekiel choked, freaking. Then you go, oh, there's a lot more. I don't know what I'm doing. Yes. So it so takes a minute to convince you of that. Yeah. So that's when you kind of when the it's all the Dunning Kruger effect. It's mm-hmm. it's essentially like yeah, when you think you people who are like so confident, they're the ones that know less than the people who are like not confident at all because mm-hmm. they know how much there is not to know. Almost, you know, they have a grasp on it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Dave. Good deal, Dave. Mm-hmm. Said something, I forget his exact words, but I wish I remembered it. It was something like, oh, yeah, there, when he's talking about jujitsu, mm-hmm. he was like, um, yeah, it's, it's almost like you get, wor- you, you learn, what do you say? It's, it's almost like you get worse over time because yesterday there was only three things I didn't know. Yeah. Like now there's like 40 things yeah. I don't know, kind and of thing. Tomorrow there's a thousand things. Yeah, and, yeah. And the day that you start to look, start to feel okay is when you go, oh, there's an infinite number yeah. of things I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I just don't know anything. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so we want to know stuff. Hey, complacency, right? Complacency, that's one of the deals. It's like your whole brain and body, but brain trying to, trying to like be lazy Mm. for lack of a better term. Like I said before, trying to save energy, trying to save work. Like what are you going to do more work or less work? Yep. See what I'm saying? It's like a Rubik's cube. Are you good at Rubik's cube? Yeah. You are. Yeah, I can, uh, you know I, the formula. Yep, I know. I know all, all the uh, algorithms to get the sides turned up right. That's good. Well, let's say you didn't. Well, actually, now I'm just kidding, bro. I know how to do Rubik's cube. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of surprised me when I was like, "Damn, okay, yeah. all right." That's like if you said but, you knew how to play the piano. But it is an algorithm that yeah, you yeah, learn yeah. how to yeah. do it's stuff. Like a little language yeah, a little, for sure. A little um, steps. Yes, yes, exactly right. Like, yeah, it's a little formula for sure. Um, but. Whether you know the formula or not, I would imagine that, let's say you got that thing figured out, mm-hmm. right? But then on one side, you got that one freaking different color on the side. Mm-hmm. Just the one. Mm-hmm. You know that's not just one move. That's like, yeah. f- you know, there's 1,800 like, moves you got to no, do. No, not. There's like. Oh, there's you like, know the formula. No. There's like 13 moves. Boom, 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 yeah, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Left, left, up, two, two, four. I would know, imagine whatever. it'd be like multiples of four for some reason. I don't know why I think that. But could be right, could be wrong. Here's the deal. Let me ask you this. What, you know, I was the kid in 
when Rubik's Cube came out, it took me like yeah. no less than you know fifteen minutes to figure out how to break that thing apart okay. and reassemble it in the correct order. Yeah, and and then actually that's smart to do in a couple. It, yeah, it's creative. Put it this yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Well, your yours might. I'm not saying you were creative because I don't know, but you seem like the type. You didn't do it out of creativity. You did it just out of like brute fucking Jocko. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but when you break I that. I cannot deny that I used brute Jocko. <laughs> yeah. Just like, hey, Leo, I'm going to solve this problem the most direct uh, way I can. But if you look at those Rubik's Cube, you take it all apart. It The last pieces, those center pieces, mm-hmm. kind of tell a little bit of a story. Yeah. See what I'm saying? They, you can, they're stuck there. Well, no, I think you can take them out. You could pop and them off, like but then this little why star would you do thing. that? Yeah, yeah, it would make less sense. Exactly right. That's what I'm saying. It take it tells a little story there. So you're like, oh, I see. You know, then maybe <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you'd do to then put them put them back together. Here's another way to do it. There, are, all the colors are little stickers. Oh God. Yeah. Less brute way of doing it, a little bit more sophisticated is what I'm saying. I don't know until you got like glue all over your freaking hands. And I didn't, I didn't say it was perfect. I didn't say it was perfect. Either way, that's the frustration. You got it all figured People out. Do Rubik's for, like, cubes in seconds, yeah. by the way. Oh, yeah. Bro, you, you ever <laughs> seen those freaking. So, Ruby's Cube is what? It's nine on each side, right? Bro, you ever yes. seen those ones with like freaking like 64 squares on each side or whatever? I have not seen they're, that. They're nuts. And mm. guys will do them too. In like a time lapse or whatever. Nonetheless, you see my point. No, I have no idea what you're. Where point you is. think you got you all. think you got things figured out in life, oh, right? Okay. Then you get this this one lone idea that kind of jams up your whole way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Just that one. It's way easier to take off that sticker, or maybe just turn it to the side where you can't see that thing. See what I'm saying? It's way easier. Okay. Save way way more energy. But the reality is, the correct thing to do is probably you got to know that algorithm the formula formula. it's gonna take some steps and take some more work but at the end of the day you're gonna have it correct that's what i think okay see me saying yes 100 percent, bro and that's the way you gotta think in a way so amazing like see even even your attitude right now (laughs) is telling me that you're you might be feeling the effects of the the the, what do you call it well how'd you put it like slipping off the the path you know my mind is so close (laughs) to your freaking metaphors right now it's ridiculous (laughs) <laughs> anyway, we're working out. It's squat season, yeah, by the way. I heard. Apparently, I, I, apparently it's squat apparently season. Squat season. We're back so, in the squat. So we're so we're we're on the path of staying there. Hey, look, the beginning of squat season, the beginning of any physical related season, if there's any more than squat season, mm-hmm. it's gonna be painful, especially oh, in the yeah. beginning. Doms. If you go snowboarding, the first day of snowboarding season, that day you're going to have DOMS. You're going to be sore. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Bring anyway, my point, my point is you're going to need some supplementation here and there. You know, okay. it's no problem. We got some for you. Jocko has some for you. Jocko Fuel. That was a long ramp. Let's start <laughs> with the energy drinks. See, this is, a, this, is, this is not seasonal. This is year-round yeah. energy drink. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But not the traditional energy drink. This is a health, healthy energy drink. Energy health drink. Whatever yeah. you want to call it. All upside, no downside. All healthy for you. You'll be healthier after you drink one or two. See what I'm saying? Yep. Uh, by the way, there's a new pre-workout yes, sir. powder formula, which JP Danell did two dry scoops and, and, uh, and did the chaser of the yeah. sour apple sniper. Yeah. But I did. I was talking to my daughter today, and she just did her first experience on the new powder yeah. the new go powder and while i was talking to her she was on the rower 
Sure. Getting that C2, getting that pull on, pulling some chain out. Get that chain out. <laughs> yes, sir. And she was saying, as she, in between breaths, that I wasn't even going to row today, <laughs> but I took the go. <laughs> it freaking hit. <laughs> <laughs> and that is so a real thing. That's a real it thing. It hits, yeah. So, and I was, and I mentioned this before, offline, where I'm no stranger to the jittery mm-hmm. pre-workout powders. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not scared of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you get the jitters or whatever, all that stuff. To me, that's no factor. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when you're like tired and the jitters hit you, I'd rather have jitters and then be fired up to work out than not have jitters and not be fired up okay. to work out. Right. So I'm like, I'm no, I'm not, I'm not scared of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, are, and are jitters necessary though? That's the thing. That's a, that, it seems like we've discovered that we don't need them. I didn't even think about that stuff. To me, that's just what the pre-workout was. Good. I'll take all of it, whatever, you, whatever. But it is, and I, and I realize this because I heard people say like, oh yeah, you drink this like tea. They'd say this about some teas like, yeah, you're up, but, you're, but it's like a smooth or whatever, mm. the smoothness or whatever. I'm like, cool, man, smoothness, all good, mm. whatever. It just wasn't part of my world until I got the experience. Mm. So the pre-workout, I took it. I'm like, cool. The thing is I haven't been doing pre-workout for like years now. So I took this one. I was like, cool, no jitters. So I'm thinking, mm, maybe Jock was just sort of scared of the pre-workout experience. I get it. You know, a little bit more mild. I get it, man. I get it. But when you start warming up, that's when you feel it. Like that when everything starts flowing, it's like it connects your brain to your freaking body more or something. Yeah, out of body experience. That's, no, no, no. An in, in, in body experience. Nonetheless. <laughs> what I'm saying is what your daughter was talking about. I understand. Yeah. And it's true. And yeah, I think it re-evalu- I, I had to reevaluate my whole standard of the pre-workout because I knew like the pre-workouts that I was taking, that's not good. That's why I stopped. Yeah. Because I'm like, cool, it's working. But bro, I know I'm jamming myself up. My heart, I don't know what I'm jamming up on the inside, but I'm jamming something up. Um, and yeah, man, no, now I know the new standard. See what I'm saying? So you can get that. You can get your super hard workouts with a little extra k- kick. Yes, sir. Which might mean... You need to protect yourself from a joint perspective a little bit more. Yeah. Let's go joint warfare. Let's go super krill. Yes, sir. Might as well might as well keep your immunity in check because we're we're starting to work hard getting like uh, uh, needing recovery. Oh, yeah. Want maybe the immune system's taking a little hit. We'll get a little boost yeah. from some cold war, some vitamin D three. Kind of got you covered. Uh, yeah, you know <laughs> it, when you kind of like go down the list, you kind of like. Uh, it's a whole system, yeah. really, and it's and it's not the kind of like uh like I don't want to say useless because I don't want to like put put that kind of stigma on other types of supplements, mm-hmm. but it's like a whole system to yeah. to stay very solidly like on the path. Yeah, and then you get on the because we know we're kind of in squat season apparently, Hell yeah. but then and then you can be in squat season, which means you might want to get on board the milk train. Yes, sir, because <laughs> you're gonna need to he build. Oh yeah, from your activities. Oh yeah, squativities. So I <laughs> squativities. <laughs> squativities. Hell yeah, I ate two steaks the other day. Concurrently, like why? Yeah, yeah, in one meal. In one meal, two but steaks, brown rice. Because why wouldn't you just have one big steak? Uh, they were two medium steaks. Okay. I don't know. That's the size you buy at the store. Okay. Right? Okay. 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 Got it. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe I could have went to the what do you got the butcher. butcher. Yeah. You know. And give me a, I, that didn't happen. Right. How many so, ounces were you thinking? Uh, what's the medium regular one? You know, I have the thin one, 
the ribeyes, right? You have the yeah, thin okay. ribeyes. Okay. Then you have the super, those super fat ones that you mm-hmm. get from the guy behind the counter. And then you have the regular medium ones. Okay. Right? Yeah, two of those. Two basically. of the mediums, yes. Okay. yes. Which was a lot. Normally, mm-hmm. I just have one. So I'm like, cool. I needed some additional protein. That's why. Yeah. Came home late, didn't eat all day. I was only having one meal, so I needed I to double up on the protein. Had to. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Brown rice. But can't be doing that every day. Yeah. See what I'm saying? I'm just saying it's not and, convenient. Yeah. And also, let's face it, when you get done, you still, or at least I, even with those dose ribeyes, yeah. I can still get done with two ribeyes, marbled, tasty, <laughs> pff, oh, good to go. Marbled to perfection. Yeah. And you yeah. can still get done. I can still get done and want to have dessert. Yes, sir. What, now, what am I going to have for dessert? Could I have something that is negates my physical progress? I yeah. could. Or I could just have milk. Yeah, that's one more step <laughs> forward, even. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. So good. Once it hits the lips, bro. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Thank you, Jocko, for the lips uh, thing. So uh, that's from a movie. You should have picked up on that. You I, not pick up on that? No, bro. All I, uh, all I got is the imagery of your no, that's lips. No, that's a. Frank the Tank, man, in what movie is it, K-Dog? Old school. Yeah, old, old school. school. Old school, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's talking about beer, like a beer funnel. What is it called, a beer funnel? Is that right? Beer bong. Beer bong, yeah, yeah, beer bong. <laughs> it's so good once it hits the lip. That's kind of like milk. It's the same feeling. <laughs> it's so good. Once it hits the lip, you just. Yes, sir. Same thing. I understand yeah. fully. Uh, you ever eat uh, bison ribeye? Yeah. Did I ask oh, you yeah. that already? Oh, yeah. Bro, I think that's the new thing. Get a grass-fed bison ribeye, smaller, mm-hmm. but bro, it's kind of legit. Well, actually, the thing you know over at other people's houses right now is actually elk. elk. <laughs> 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 all right, yeah, all right, that's right. Yeah, elk is good. I, I yeah, had some out there some just elk, yeah. you know you you know exactly where it came from. Just elking it up. Well, yep. All right, good. You were there at the moment of truth. Yeah, did it. Good, good. Yes. So, in the event of you not having elk in your freezer as the case may be uh yeah. from your haunt as yeah. the case may be or double ribeyes at any given moment or bison steak right you want some additional protein milk train all day milk train hey you can get all this stuff at jockofuel.com if you subscribe to it the shipping's free you can get the drinks at wawa yes sir you can get all all of it at vitamin shop we appreciate those those stores carrying this stuff because look you might want to roll in there yeah, so roll in there. Roll in a Wawa. Get yourself a hoagie and a go. <laughs> I didn't really know what a hoagie was, by the way. Yeah. Is that an East Coast thing or what? Yes. Yes. Hoagie. There's a whole bunch of names for that particular Subway sandwich. Sub sandwich. Sub sandwich. What you know what we used to call it? Where I'm from, grinder. Uh, Have you ever heard that before? It would be called it's a grinder. Not ringing a bell. My wife, who's from England, would sure. call it a BAP. B-A-P. <laughs> I for sure have not heard that. Yep. So yeah, yeah. there's some other ones I think we're missing. Oh, poor boy, po' boy, po' boy, po' boy. Po boy. I heard, I heard that That's before. another one. So there's there's some names out there. All right, Hoagie. Uh, yep. All day. Meanwhile, also, yeah, also Origin USA. This is American made stuff. Look, you get look. Our health is together. We know that already. We're staying on the path. It's not. Don't get complacent on the path. We're staying on the path. Right. Yep. Look, you want as far as apparel goes. We all wear clothes. Hopefully, mm-hmm. well, maybe. We wear clothes. Yeah. We'll say that. Let's yeah. just say we that. We are wearing clothes. Look, yeah. we want some uh, iconic American-made attire, denim jeans, mm-hmm. boots, mm-hmm. some shirts, mm-hmm. some other leather wallets, yep. belts, this kind of stuff. What if it was all made in America? Oh, it is. Or what USA. If? By the way, but you want that bison steak? Mm-hmm. Cool. How about the bison boots? 
boom, boom, yeah, there you go. Boom. Oh, yeah. Made in America. Supple leather. Have you ever heard me use the term supple before? Probably I think not. I did one one time and it was very uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm going to use it again right now describing some bison boots, which are supple. supple. There you go. Freaking you heard it here. Folks. Go. But yes, but everything made in America from the from the materials, the yeah. raw materials grown in America, yeah. everything all the way up to the jeans you wearing on your hips. And so you're good 24 hours a day because you got also because we're training jujitsu. You got your jujitsu gi. You got yeah. a rift gi. You're gonna put. You're never gonna get another kind of gi again. Oh yeah. So the whole system is accounted for right yeah. here. Seems we're just in the game. It's true. OriginUSA.com. Also, Jocko has a store. So now you want to go into straight up representing <laughs> on the path, like a choice, a conscious choice to represent. Right. Is there a psychological yes, sir. hit that you get when you were a little kid, you got new sneakers, yes, sir. you're running a little bit faster. Yes, sir. We're on the path. We yep. put on a freaking T-shirt that says "Discipline equals freedom." Yep. Do we go a little bit harder? Yes, in the do. paint. Yes, we do. And so. here's the thing: that sounds like oh, that's uh, that's kind of like funny or whatever. It's it's absolutely true. And here's the thing: do an experiment, a scientific. Wear <laughs> wear a shirt or hoodie or whatever says "Discipline equals freedom." Look in the mirror and eat a cookie. See how? I'm not saying you're not gonna be able to eat the cookies. I'm not saying that. It's going to be harder for It's going to be way harder, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So now if you're just in your everyday life, but you're representing, Mm -hmm. by the chances of you slipping off the path, even for that moment. I actually feel bad we haven't put this word out before, because this is important, as you like to say. (laughs) It is kind of important. It is. Yes, sir. It's true. It's absolutely true. So it just sort of applies. Like if you're just representing in general, in general, it's just that much more efficient way of staying on the path. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And let's face it. You see somebody else representing. You're representing. There's the cohesion. Yeah. Yeah. Bro. Now we're even stronger together. Together. Also, the shirt locker. This is a part of Jocko's store. It's a part. Choose a sign up for shirt locker. You get a new shirt every month with, did you change the word? Creative designs. You said something. Well, else. now they're actually badass because the new badass. one that just came out is and it's uh, new. It's a t- it's like a new scenario. It is. It's a scenario. tank. Yes, sir. <laughs> yep. There's kettlebells flying off, which I noticed. Yeah, you did run into the kettlebells. There's yeah. kettlebells like flying through the air. Yep. I'm riding this tank sort of in an aggressive, hostile kind of way, wearing a deathcore t-shirt, t-shirt, yep. which I'm wearing right now, by the yes, way. Sir. Maybe I just dismounted my tank and showed up here to do this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah. Two machine guns. Two machine guns. Um, yeah. And the tank is an M1 Abrams it tank, indeed, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, very good uh, depiction. But it looks of, like a comic yeah. book thing. That's what made it. It's kind of a dope thing. Yep, it's true. I commend your your uh, your work there. Commended. The, um, the bad news is that was last month's shirt mm. or this past month's sh- shirt. The good news is when you're signed up for short logger, I don't care if you sign up next year, you can still get that shirt if you want. You have access Dang to that you. shirt if you if you signed up. So, boom, no worries. Anyway, yeah, jockostore.com. You want to represent? Boom, that's where you can get the stuff to represent. Speaking of subscription, subscribe to this podcast. Don't forget about Unraveling Podcast, Grounded Podcast, Warrior Kid Podcast. I got asked by kids at Jocko Live, which, by the way, is Jocko Live in Austin. Yep, coming up. Uh, Saturday night. Yes, sir. Austin, Texas, November 20th. So if you want to come to that and ask me questions or hang out or listen to me talk, come check that out. But also Warrior Kid Podcast. We also have Jocko Underground, which, again, we, we, we have contingency plans. Mm-hmm. We were recently we were recently shadow banned. Shadow banned. Shadow banned. Yep, yeah. we got shadow banned on 
Instagram, you know, people are going, why? Why'd you get shadow banned? That's the problem. We don't know why. We have some suspicions. We're going to talk about it on the underground. I'm going to explain the reasons why I think the shadow ban might have come. I've been unshadow banned now, apparently. Mm-hmm. We have information. <laughs> we do have information. We've got troopers in, in, let's just say, we have placement, access, something we call access and placement. Cool. We have people. Mm-hmm. So we will hopefully not let that happen again. But look, it can happen. Mm-hmm. And that's why we made Jocko Underground in case mayhem happens, in case we get locked down. We don't control these platforms that you're listening to this on. We do control jockounderground.com. If you want to help support us, it costs $8.18 a month because we appreciate that support to have that contingency plan set up. We make an extra podcast, Jocko Underground. We talk about other subjects adjacent to this. The one that's about to come out is actually explaining why I think we why I think I got shadow banned and a little behind the information. So you can check that out if you want. Go to jockounderground.com. If you can't afford it, we still want, we, we're still, like, we're, you're still with us. Mm-hmm. If you can't afford that $8.18 a month, just email assistance at jockounderground.com and we'll get you access to it. We have a YouTube channel. You can subscribe to that, subscribe to Origin USA YouTube channel for some behind the scenes. We got a, a, an album called Psychological Warfare. If you need a little help in a moment of weakness, and look, we could make an album where you have a moment of weakness and we you press the track mm-hmm. and it's Echo talking about a Rubik's Cube <laughs> for 15 minutes with no logical meaning behind it. <laughs> that part's incorrect. Very much logic, yes. But we did, we didn't do that. Maybe we'll do that at some point. Okay. People, that, people that have more time to overcome their weakness. <laughs> but if you want to get that, go to wherever you get MP3s. You can get Psychological Warfare. Uh, I am the artist. <laughs> yep. Because it says artist's name. Jocko. Jocko. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Boom. Flipside canvas. Yeah. Dakota Meyer making just awesome stuff. He started a distribution company, by the way, in, in Texas. I'm investing in his beverage distribution company. He started going out proactively delivering Jocko Go to various stores. And now he's got people ordering it. Bro, that's an anti-authoritarian is stick mind. Dude, it's freaking She's Dakota like, Meyer. Do just, my dude, way. He's gonna make yep. things happen. Yep, he doesn't make it happen. whatever. Who's in what there's someone in the way? Cool. I just outmaneuvered them. Yep. Oh, there's some distribution company that didn't want to make the connections. Oh cool. Dakota Meyer just in a truck. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Making it happen. I think he signed up 40 stores right now. My man. Well, hey, d- hey, what's going on? Oh, oh, I'll figure this out and make it happen. So there you go. He's also got, he's also selling stuff to hang on your wall. Flipsidecanvas.com. Go and order something cool there. Mm-hmm. Got some books. Final Spin. It's out right now. It, we don't even know what it is. Novel, poem. We know that it brings tears to J.P. Donnell. <laughs> J.P. Donnell crying in the play, oh, crying in public. Um, <laughs> check that out. Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. Code Evaluation and Protocol. Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. Way the Warrior Kid, one, two, three, four. Get the freaking books for your kids or kids that you know. It's sort of, if you have the ability to get those books for some kid that you know and you don't, you are, you're not a good person. <laughs> you're not a good person. <laughs> Straight up. If you know a kid and you don't get them those books, you're not you're hurting those kids. Mm. This is factual. Mm. So whatever. I know I've I've met some really cool people lately. I met someone down at the monster, jujitsu, jujitsu player. Sure. 
He's like, oh yeah, I carry, I carry way the warrior kid in my bag. Yeah. Any kid that I meet, they're getting it. Yeah. He's just helping kids worldwide. Yeah. So do that. Put it in your bag, carry it around. You see a kid, you go, hey kid, here you go. Imagine that. You can influence the rest of someone's life by doing that. Yeah. So way the warrior kid, one, two, and three. Mike and the dragons. Apparently the best, uh, what age group is that? Little kids. Yeah, yeah, What do you call them? Little uh, kids. Like post taught. I don't know. I don't know what they're called. I don't that know, age five group. Years, Picture book level. Yeah. Yep. Mike and the Dragons. Get your kids. Get kids to overcome fear. Hackworth, about face. Um, wrote the forward to that. What an honor. And then, of course, extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership. And uh, we have Echelon Front, leadership consultancy. Myself and my brother, Leif Babin. We started that, now we got a big bunch of team, a big team of people, and what we do is solve problems through leadership. The solution is leadership. Whatever's going on in your organization, the solution is leadership. Go to echelonfront.com for details on that. You can also check out some of our live events, the muster, field training exercises, EF Battlefield. Next muster's Dallas, Texas, March 24th and 25th. We got Jocko live in Austin. Saturday night. November 20th come and check it out we have online training extreme ownership Academy you do not learn any of this stuff overnight you have to train in it just like jujitsu just like playing guitar just like shooting basketball you need to train continually go to extremeownership.com to get your leadership skills honed and if you want to help service members active and retired, their families, Gold Star families, Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee, she's got a charity organization. If you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. And if you want more of my excruciating explanations or you need more of Echo's convoluted connections to Rubik's Cubes. <laughs> well, Echo is Adequate Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. And to all the troops out there around the world, standing watch, keeping us safe, thank you for your service and sacrifice. And to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, and all first responders, thank you for your service here at home to keep us safe. And to everyone else out there, maybe ask yourself that question if you are possibly incompetent. And I hope you're not. But how do you avoid being incompetent? Number one lesson from this book, it's something that we talk about all the time. Be humble, listen, don't think you know everything. Because you don't. Be humble, keep an open mind. The thing that traps your mind, the thing that traps your mind is your mind. So pry it open, keep it open, and go get after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko, out.